candy for my brain. Check out this review on mood, memory, and brain from Justin F. This product is amazing. He says, I started an animal-based diet at the beginning of the year, and I'll never look back. Nutrition and health have always been a staple in my day-to-day, -day, and because of Carnivore MD, yes, that's me, I expanded my perspective on what a nutritious diet should consist of. That being said, I've already purchased a kale is bullshit shirt. I wanted to take my nutrition to the next level. So I purchased mood, memory, and brain, and the effects were almost immediate. The mental clarity, focus, and ability to think clearly and articulate effectively improved. I'm currently going through paramedic school, and I will not be without mood, memory, and brain from heart and soil. It has been an absolute game changer. Big thanks to Paul Saladino and everyone who is a part of Heart and Soil. I, I'm so stoked. Like I've talked about in the past, there's really good evidence with desiccated brain, just like what we use in mood, memory, and brain from heart and soil supplements. It's from New Zealand. There's never been a case of BSE in New Zealand ever. And so the cognitive benefits of this are pronounced, probably the phosphatidylserine and other compounds in there. And if that weren't enough, look at this review. The best beauty product out there from Brooke R., on skin, hair, and nails from Heart and Soil Supplements. I've struggled with temperamental skin since high school. I've tried all sorts of skincare and topical treatments. Everything always took forever to work and would only target one of the few issues I've had with my skin, not all of them. I've been taking skin, hair, and nails for a couple of weeks now, along with beef organs. My face has not broken out once. Texture and redness are improving. My acne scars are healing. I don't get oily throughout the day. I've also stopped using every single one of my skincare products, including moisturizer, sunscreen, and makeup. My skin has never been better. I've also noticed that my nails are stronger. And don't break anymore. This stuff is amazing. It is amazing what happens when you put real nutrition into a capsule so that more people can take it. Fresh organs are fantastic. If you can't get those, check us out at heartandsoil.co to get your desiccated organs. I talked about moon memory and brain today and skin, hair, and nails. And those of you who are very astute will notice that I am wearing a prototype version of the new Kayla's Bullshit shirt. On YouTube, you can see it. Stay tuned. We're prototyping it. It will be available for full purchase in the very near future, and you will be seeing more of it. On this week's episode, I wanted to share with you all a question and answer session that I did during the animal-based gathering in Costa Rica in March of 2022. This one was amazing. It was in my house. I was a little apprehensive about this, but it went over really well. We, for more than two hours, had question and answer between me and the participants, the nearly 100 people who came all the way to Santa Teresa, Costa Rica to be a part of the animal-based gathering, which was amazing in its own right. But this is the question and answer, the live Q&A. I had no prep. I had no idea what questions people were gonna ask me. I was off the cuff on all of these. So enjoy this Q&A, this live Q&A with me from the animal-based gathering in Costa Rica. If you're listening to this on audio version, know that there is a, YouTube video version with all of this footage nicely cut together if you want to see what the animal-based gathering looked like and you want to be there with us in, in spirit or in video spirit. So that is today's podcast. Enjoy that one. Also, uh, I want to give a thanks to my sponsors. They are always amazing and I appreciate their support mucho. I want to start with White Oak Pastures, whiteoakpastures.com, based in Bluffton, Georgia, 120 years, 25 years of those regenerative Sixth generation family farm doing regenerative agriculture. They are good people doing good work, producing very good food. The soil there is the color of coffee grounds, whereas farms that are not farm regeneratively looks more like weak chocolate milk. The difference is pronounced. This is really where things started with regenerative agriculture. So if you are looking for grass fed and grass finished 
meat or organs. They also have corn and soy free chickens, which are amazing. They have all kinds of good stuff there. Check them out, whiteoakpastures.com. You can use the code CARNIVOREMD for 10% off your first order. And if you are a returning customer, use the code CARNIVOREMD to get 5% off your subsequent orders at White Oak Pastures. This is a new thing they've added for listeners of this podcast. I appreciate them so much. Carnivore MD will get you 10% off if you are a first-time customer and 5% off if you are a returning customer. So those of you who are faithful customers at White Oak, you can still use the code Carnivore MD to get 5% off those orders. I want to also give a shout out to my buddy Monsel and his awesome stuff at sacredhunting.com. As I am recording this, I am in Austin, Texas. I'm sitting in the Hardened Soil HQ in Austin, Texas, because I just got back from a weekend hunt with Monsel. It was awesome. On these hunts, you not only learn the basics of how to track, stalk, kill, and field dress wild game animals, but he adds a ritual and Native American component that makes it a rite of passage. It was really a great hunt. I went out this time with my girlfriend, Lindsay, and I was able to gather, shoot, harvest a a black buck antelope doe, which we shared among everyone in the group. We spent a lot of time outdoors. We spent a lot of time meditating and thinking about being in the space. And it really was a very awesome rite of passage, this hunt. Fundamental Health listeners save $250 on their trip by mentioning my name. There are There's one more date, May 20th to 22nd, 2022, set up for carnivore followers. There are five spots on each hunt. Go to sacredhunting.com front slash Paul, fill out the two minute application, set up an exploratory call with Monsell. Even if you miss the May 20th to 22nd uh, opportunity, I would go on any hunt with Monsell. Again, it's a really great experience. Um, He knows where to go for the animals and you will have, I think, a very fruitful experience. This was my second sacred hunt. I went on one a couple of years ago. It was awesome to be back. Also got to give a shout out. This podcast is sponsored by Let's Get Checked. You can find them at trylgctrylgc.com front slash carnivore MD. They also say the coupon code is carnivore. I don't know. Just keep figuring it out and you'll find them. But men's healthy sperm counts, men's testosterones are tanking, kind of like Bitcoin and all crypto and all the markets, unfortunately. But uh, you must know what your testosterone is doing. And in order to do that, you need to get your blood work checked. It is a real impediment. It's inconvenient for many of us to go to the doctor. Uh, You can get it done at home. And I appreciate Let's Get Checked doing this. They are empowering people to get their blood work checked at home. And Let's Get Checked customers will save 20% off by using the URL I mentioned above, try, T-R-Y-L-G-C.com, front slash carnivoremd. Coupon code is carnivore. Here's how it works. You go to T-R-Y-L-G-C.com, choose your test, activate it online, Uh, get it sent to you, next day delivery. Collect your results at home. If you do male hormones, you will get testosterone, SHBG, prolactin, estrogen, free androgen index. Once your results are available, reviewed by a physician, and then a nurse contacts you for a consultation over the phone. Uh, And I did this at home. It was very convenient. They send you all the stuff. I had CRP, I had lipids, I had um, blood levels of fatty acids, And I also had chemistries and a CBC done in my home. And I also did my male hormones. It was super easy. Try LGC, T-R-Y-L-G-C.com front slash carnivore MD. Maybe the coupon code is carnivore uh, to get this done in the convenience of your own home. Uh, And I think democratized access to testing is what it is about. Last but not least, while I was in on this hunt with Monsal, I appreciated my Earth Runners. You can check them out at earthrunners 
earthrunners.com. You can use the code Paul for 10% off earthrunners.com. Use the code Paul. Um, I wanted to be barefoot as much as I could, but when I couldn't be barefoot, I appreciate that there are these minimalist sandals that help my feet move along with the ground to keep my foot muscle strong. And they have it built in that you are still grounding. You are still connected to the electric energy of the earth because they've made them uninsulated. It's really cool. This is incongruence with ancestral wisdom. We need more nature-based lifestyle practices like this. We are too separated from the natural world. We don't always think about how our feet interact with nature and our ancestors were always grounded virtually. It's only since insulated shoes that we've lost the connection to the bioelectrics of the earth, right? You wanna be barefoot a lot, but you can't be barefoot in Whole Foods unless you're in Costa Rica and you really can't be barefoot in places where there's lots of spikes. But um, earth runners have a copper earthing plug and a conductive laces to keep you grounded to the earth with these minimalist sandals. They're an ancestral inspired company and they're pretty darn cool. Uh, they've taken the millennia-old footwear design is known as the Harache Sandal, simple sole with a wrapping lace, one of the oldest designs in history, upgraded it with Vibram soles and earthing technology to give you the most minimal, natural, and grounded shoe experience you have ever had. It helps you restore your natural connection to the earth, and it's a minimalist sole, minimalist sole for a full range of foot movement, and it improves everything upstream. They aspire to restore our relationship with nature and rediscover our ancestral roots with minimalist earthing sandals. So you can go to earthrunners.com, use the code Paul for 10% off. That is it. On to the podcast this week. All right, guys, welcome to the Fundamental Health Podcast. You're all superstars now. You're all going to be in this video and this, this recording. This is the first time we've done something like this. We are at the second annual animal-based retreat at Santa Teresa, Costa Rica. Let's do a little whoop for the crowd so everybody listening to Someone is just, if you're just listening to this podcast, there's probably 9,500 people in this room with me. And we're going to go around and ask questions and see where it goes. I have no idea what they're going to ask me, but we'll see. And uh, hopefully I'll have some semblance of reasonably coherent answers. So who's up? Who wants to start? I'll start. All right. My name is Jerome. I come from central Mexico to see you down here in Costa Rica. And I have a, a simple question. I think it's a simple question. So I was about 180 pounds six months ago. I'm 155 now and I'm starting to get, I'm training much more. I'm, I wouldn't consider myself 100% carnivore, but for, for all intents and purposes, mostly. And uh, I've been eating about 80 to 100 grams of protein a day. And I've been working out at the gym and swimming and boxing. And I, my question has to do with the development of muscles. And so I have, certain, I have a certain amount of muscle development on 80 to 100 grams of protein. If I did the same workouts with the same intensity, but increased the level of protein intake, would that have an effect on the muscle structure and the muscle, the amount of muscle that I have? I think it probably would. My sense is it probably would. Um, if you weigh 150 pounds, I would eat 175 grams of protein. I would double your protein. Um, if you're 80 to 100, I would go to 175. I was having this conversation with somebody else yesterday. I think most people don't get enough protein. And protein and animal foods and red meat gets vilified so much, but I think that this is a huge lever that very few people pull. I have a 71-year-old mother with osteoporosis, osteopenia. She doesn't get enough protein. And I think that the evidence that red meat, especially uh, the leucine, amino acids, the branch chain amino acid leucine in red meat, I think the evidence that that is harmful for humans or overactivates mTOR or decreases longevity is just 
essentially non-existent. It's complete bullshit. I don't think it happens at all. So I don't think humans should fear protein in any way, shape, or form. Obviously, everyone has... A, a, there is a threshold at which your kidney can no longer turn uh, the protein into urea, right? In which case, it spills over to ammonia, and that's a problem. But for most people, that's massively more than what they're eating. Perhaps twice the 160 or 150 that you should be eating. It's probably 300 or 280 grams of protein for you, at which point you start spilling over, spilling over into ammonia. So there's individual basis, but I think many people would have a very hard time reaching their protein threshold. And so I think that you have a lot of room to go. One gram of protein per pound of body weight is, I think, the bottom for most people. And so everybody can think, okay, I weigh 135 pounds, I weigh 180 pounds, am I getting 135 grams of protein? Am I getting 180 grams of protein? And then see as you go up. I weigh 165, and I think every day I'm probably eating 210, 220 grams of protein right now, because I'm getting, I'm probably eating more than that, actually, because I'm getting two pounds of grass-fed ground beef. Shout out to the folks at Grass-Fed Costa Rica who were here yesterday doing the, the organ tasting and the, the carving for us. And then, and then I'm doing organs, and then I'm also doing raw goat's milk kefir, which has protein. So I might be closer to 250 these days. Right. And I don't see massive changes in my body, but I think if you're up at the level where your body's getting enough protein, I think that's where you're going to maximize muscle mass. And for men and women, this is important, because I'm going on a tangent here. I'll, I'll pause and then let someone ask, ask a question. But I think there is no greater driver of leanness than your basal metabolic rate. There is this... Um, there's this fallacy, there's this misconception that you can exercise your way to a six-pack. And I think that's pretty false. Like, it's really hard to exercise your way to a six-pack sustainably because your thyroid will compensate and all these systems will, will change in your body. So, um, and we can talk about fasting if you want, but I think that for most people, maximizing your basal metabolic rate is the key to ideal body composition. How do you do that? You do that with proper sleep, circadian rhythms, vitamin D, nutrients, organs, meat. And then you do it with adequate amounts of protein and then lean muscle mass and some sort of stimulants. And I don't think the stimulants has to be massive. You know, uh, somebody was asking me earlier how do you like micro workouts. And I think it's true. Like I just did like four sets of front squats and maybe three or four sets of pull-ups today and a few sets of dips. That's it. I probably won't do much else. I also surf, but like I'm not in the gym three hours a day. I think just giving your body some resistance uh, stimulus will will drive it to carry more muscle mass, and that will increase your basal metabolic rate. That was a long answer to your question. Well, thanks for the answer. A real quick follow-on. With respect to supplementing the protein, if I had, say, a, a relatively clean, clean whey protein powder, is that something that's acceptable if I don't have red, red meat or organs to consume? If you don't have red meat or organs, then, yeah, use a protein powder. But if you have red meat or organs, why would you just not eat a steak? Because you think about the information that's in red meat and organs, and there's different information when you've hydrolyzed the protein and taken away the amino acids. Like people, like these protein powders are becoming popular. People ask me, like, what about this protein shake or that protein shake? And I think, why don't we just eat another steak? Just eat another hamburger. You know, just eat more heart. Just eat more protein and muscle mass in, in like actual meat. Then you'll get more zinc, more selenium, more coenzyme Q10, more heme iron. Right? You'll get more vitamin A if you're eating middle. You'll get more. Uh, you'll get more riboflavin. You get more folate. You get more nutrients. Not, that's not as much of that's going to be, very few of that, very little of that is going to be in the protein powders. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a good grass-fed whey protein is fine if you tolerate it, but again, it's like, why not do milk? Right. Now, do raw milk, right? Raw milk, kefir. Then you're just getting more information in there. Fantastic. Thank you. Who's up? Who's next? All right, right here. I'm Ashley coming from Sarasota, Florida. So about five years ago, I got sucked into the China study and forks over knives. Mm -hmm. I became vegan. I was healthy. I just wanted to be healthier. Uh, ended up with Hashimoto's, an excessive weight that I had to lose. So I was pregnant with my third son, started eating meat again, and everything went away. So, Amazing. Yep. 
Um, my question is, so two counter arguments I've heard recently to carnivore is one that eating organ meat is, I think about one ounce of liver causes excess copper. And then the second one is that it lowers um, stomach acid. So I'm curious about your thoughts on those. What specifically are people concerned is going to lower stomach acid? I don't know the mechanism. I don't know what the, I didn't research their argument, but I've heard it recently as like a, a against carnivore. Okay. Okay. So the, the interesting thing about copper and zinc, these are two divalent cations. So they're positively charged minerals that have a plus two charge. Copper and zinc have the same protein in the gut that binds them and moves them out of the body. It's a metallothionine protein. So if you're getting zinc in meat, it's, you're not going to get copper overload. It's very hard to get copper overload because the copper and the zinc are going to bind to the metallothionine. It's going to get passed out of the body. Your body regulates this pretty easily. An ounce of liver is like the size of a silver dollar. It's not a whole lot of liver. You can imagine that even when I was with the Hadza in Tanzania, we killed a baboon, the baboon has a small liver. Like people are getting like an ounce, you know, half an ounce. Like that's not a small amount of liver. To say that that is too much copper is a little crazy. Clinically, I haven't seen people with copper overload from this at all. And I think that mechanistically, we know that those metallothionine proteins in the gut are fine as long as you're getting enough zinc. Lo and behold, liver has plenty of zinc. Muscle meat that you're eating it has, with has plenty of zinc. I've never heard the argument that liver will lower stomach acid. I'm not sure what the proposed mechanism is. There is a lot of fear-mongering going on around liver, and I'm not sure where people are driving with this. Like, if we accept that, say we say, okay, an ounce of liver is too much. Are we just saying liver is bad for humans? Like, every indigenous tribe in the world eats the liver first or second or third. Like, they don't fuck around with this, right? Like, they eat liver at full stop. So, like, every indigenous tribe, all of our history that we're aware of as humans, they're wrong. You know, my dog eats liver, you know, like everybody's just being poisoned by this organ. I have trouble wrapping my head around this, this argument. Like at what point is liver not toxic? And I don't, I think that an ounce of liver is completely reasonable for humans. So in regards to the copper, this specific doctor that I saw, the copper argument, they claim that they're testing their hair and that that's where they're seeing the excess load of copper. Yeah. The uh, copper hair mineral analysis is inaccurate. Okay. It's just, an, I mean, why would your body like tightly regulate how much copper goes in your hair? It's not... It's not a physiologic view. This is a dead, you know, I mean, I guess the strands of hair are sort of alive, but they're just protein that you're, it's out of your body. You're going to shed it, right? And so people will say like, oh, if you're eating copper, you're going to put more copper in your hair, but then you're copper overloaded. This makes no sense. Okay. So if somebody's going to be copper toxic, they're going to have to show me a ceruloplasmin. They're going to have to show me a serum copper to show me that they're, they're copper toxic. And it just doesn't happen in humans. So that's an interesting end of the story that this is hair mineral analysis. Like, that's bullshit. Awesome. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, Terry. So, hi, Paul. Uh, Terry from Seattle. I have a question. Oftentimes you say, if you're thriving in your certain in your condition right now, don't worry about changing your diet. But mm -hmm. because so many chronic diseases happen over time, a lot of people might think they're thriving now. And it may be 20 years of poor eating, which is often the case. People who have all the chronic diseases have eaten that way for a long time. So isn't there an argument that everybody ought to change their diet right away, even if they think they're thriving right now? Oh, that's a great, that's a great, um, that's a great suggestion. I think you're right. Um, and I want to at least leave the door open for people to, to have some agency and some sovereignty. And like, look, if you can honestly sit with yourself and be like, I'm kicking ass, I am thriving. Like my workouts are good. My libido is good. My sleep is good. My mental clarity is good. My body composition is good. You know, I'm an NBA player, you know, like everything is amazing. Then why would you change anything about your diet? So I think that if, if people, are really that happy with their life, I just want them to know, like, yeah, don't change anything. But I think your point is well taken that a lot of people are leaving money on the table, quote unquote. Like, they're just, they're not at their full potential. And so I think about this when I see plant-based dieters and they say, look, I'm crushing it on a plant-based diet. And I think, 
How much better would you be if you had mean organs? Do the experiment. But if people are not open to that, I'm, I'm okay just kind of saying that. So I think you're right. I think I, I would hope that everyone would do an experiment with more meat, more organs, less vegetables, no seed oils, and no sugar, and see how they feel, and use that as a baseline. And until you've done that, in my opinion, which is obviously biased, you haven't really explored what I believe to be the most evolutionarily appropriate way of life for humans, but um, I still think that if somebody really can honestly say that they're thriving, then don't change a thing. But I, your point is well taken, that I think a lot of people are leaving a lot on the table, and it would be interesting. I mean, I've never done this experiment psychologically, but I would like to ask like my dad, you know, he's 71 years old. In my mind, he's clearly not thriving. And I would say, hey, dad, do you think you're thriving? <laughs> you know, like, do you think you could be better? Or my mom? I mean, let's just do from a show of hands here. Like, how many people in this room, if I said to you, if you are completely thriving, don't change a thing about your diet, would be like, I am thriving. I am 100% maximized. Who would, who would think that they're 100% maximized? You've got it, like, 100%. Zach? <laughs> One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So maybe 10%, like less than 10% of this room. I don't even know if I would raise my hand. Are we that. talking about diet? Just in your life. In yeah, diet. No, 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 in your life, in your life. Like, I'm just thinking like in my life, you know, like, because even me, you know, there's lights I don't sleep well. Like, I should meditate more. I need more mindfulness. Like, I don't, I let the stress get to me. I, if somebody said that to me, if I said that to myself, if you are completely thriving, don't change a thing about your diet, I'd be like, well, there's still things I can think about, which is why I'm always trying to evolve in my diet. I'm like, maybe I should add some dairy, right? Or maybe I need to think harder about my circadian rhythms or something. So I wouldn't even say that I qualify, you know, there, and I'm the one, I mean, I'm following all of my own advice, so yeah. I'm still learning too. Yeah, but I think there's a lot there. I mean, I think that anyone, it's, it's a little bit of reverse psychology too, but I guess if anybody that hears that and is like, I'm good, you're like, okay, you're clearly not good. It's like a little Dunning-Kruger effect, right? Like, you don't know what you don't know, but you leave them alone. All right, who's up? Hi, I'm Lindsay from Denver. Um, I got into carnivore um, because my master's in nutrition did not help me get rid of my allergic asthma and sinusitis, and I tried carnivore, and it, it didn't completely go away, but it got where I didn't need to, need to use my inhaler 12 times a day, so I'm extremely thankful I found you. Um, my question is, I have a friend from college who, since she was as young as she can remember, she claims to be allergic to meat. Like she will eat a piece of meat and vomit. And I've seen her do it. We accidentally, like she ate a bite of sausage or something and she vomited. And I'm, my question is, have you heard of that? Is there, what do you think is happening? Is there a way to rectify that? And just your thoughts about it. Did she know that she ate the sausage? She did not know. It was like, it was, so I, I was like, is it psychological? Right. But no, she did not know. It was like hidden in a pizza slice that she uh -huh. ate. And then she uh -huh. went to the bathroom and right. vomited. Yeah. And she grew up in upstate Michigan where she was getting like fresh venison. So I don't know about the quality of meat, if that was a problem. So, so she, can she eat venison? No, she said like any, any kind of meat, not just red meat, but like chicken, pork also. Any kind of meat. Mm -hmm. And she might just be a fluke, but I was just curious. Yeah, this is very strange. I mean, there's, there's one in a billion of everything, right? So I haven't heard this that often. What I have heard are a couple of things which I'll address and then I'll try and loop my way back to this. Sometimes I hear people say, oh, red meat feels heavy in my stomach. And I was actually having a conversation with someone, it might have been Zach, was. and one of my friends the other day, and Zach, who's behind the camera right now, was saying that he used to actually feel that red meat was heavy in his stomach when he was eating plants. And I thought, oh, isn't that interesting? Because one of the defense mechanisms that we can see in plants is things like tannins, which are digestive enzyme inhibitors. There's a lot of digestive enzyme inhibitors in plants, whether it's the leaves or the stems or the seeds. They have a lot of digestive enzyme inhibitors. So how many of the people 
who say meat feels heavy in my stomach are also eating plants, like 100%, right? Because like 100% people eat plants, basically. And then, not to be sexist, but this is a lot of women who say this. And so I'm thinking, okay, are these women eating a lot of salads because they think meat is going to make them bulky or not, not feminine? And then, is it possible that the legumes, the chickpeas, the nuts, they're eating the pumpkin seeds, the flax seeds, the kale, the whatever, is actually really inhibiting digestive enzymes at the level of the pancreas or even in the stomach? And that could be a problem. So it's an interesting thing to think when people say, the meat feels heavy in my stomach. I, I now want to say to people, okay, now experiment, try the meat with nothing else. And most of them probably won't do it. But I think that's a possibility too. I have come across occasionally where people think that they're allergic to beef. And that's not out of the realm of possibility. I think there are probably humans on the planet who have an allergy to beef. But many times they can eat lamb or bison or venison. I've never heard of somebody who vomits every time they eat meat. Um, and I, I don't know what to think of it. I mean, I, I, I was thinking, is this alpha-gal? You know, is it the Lone Star Tick, which is an IgE allergy? Um, but again, that's, that would be just to red meat with the, component, with the alpha-gal component of red meat that's causing that IgE allergy. Incidentally, for people who are listening to this podcast and for you guys, my friend Evan Brand, who I did a previous podcast, was telling me about a form of acupuncture that we can put in the show notes that he has seen observationally was helpful for alpha-gal, which I think is crazy, but if it works, that's incredible. Um, I forget what it's called, auricular desensitization or something. So, Because people always ask, like, what about alpha-gal? How do you fix alpha-gal? So I don't know. I have to think more uh, about that. I, it would be interesting to look at her labs and, and think about her history. Has she ever been able to eat meat in her life? She told me that from like the youngest age, her, her parents were big meat eaters and tried to force her to eat, and she would always feel sick after. So it's as far as she could remember, but to be honest, she, she lives on peanut butter and, and pasta, so I don't know about the health of her, her gut, but I, just, I was just curious because it seems to be as far as she can remember, it's been a trigger for her. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for the question. I'll have to yeah. keep thinking about it. Yeah. Uh, Charles Poliquin's very big on fixing people's stomach acid first before anything, before he died. Um, would the stomach acid test be helpful to figure out? I mean, probably, like a Heidelberg or something. It's hard to test stomach acid. Sometimes they have this little pill you can drop into the stomach and test stomach acid, but... It's not an easy test. Sometimes you will like, what do they do? Like eat baking soda or something, or you, do, you take the HCL pills and see when you start to feel warm in your stomach. I don't know. You can do an apple cider vinegar challenge. Which is what? You drink apple cider vinegar, and it's more like a hydrochloric acid test. So if you feel a burn, then you don't have enough hydrochloric acid. With apple cider vinegar. Yeah. So there's someone. I don't know if they'll. they'll be, I don't know if people on the podcast will be able to hear you over there, but. I, I haven't worked with people enough to know this. Whenever I drink apple cider vinegar, it burns the shit out of my mouth. So, and it burns going down, but I don't know. It's, it's like, it's The ACL test is the same. You're just yeah. taking enough capsules. Yes, exactly. And I, I wonder how, how accurate the HCL tests are. But, okay, who's up with questions? Hi, Paul. My name's Mary, and I've been working with people with the ketogenic diet for about 25 years. And um, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to the lean mass hyperresponder or the person who has uh, excessively elevated cholesterol and uh, probably LDLs as well. And even the third category would be the person that has very high triglycerides. Um, if you could just speak a little bit to the person that has that reaction when they go carnivore or keto, that would be awesome. Yeah, so people also get that reaction when they go animal-based. So if people are not familiar with this phenotype, the lean mass hyperresponder phenotype is something that happens to, I would guess, the majority of humans. Not all humans, but the majority of humans. I would think 60 to 70% of humans have an increase in LDL uh, if you're measuring LDL in milligrams per deciliter. 
So if you're measuring LDL density of LDL, which is milligrams per deciliter, then I think 70% of humans are going to see an increase in LDL uh, when they increase their saturated fat in the diet. And so when you really look into this, there's a pretty clear correlation between the ratio of saturated fat to mono plus polyunsaturated fat. So if you're eating more mono or poly together, then your LDL is going to be lower. If you're eating more saturated and less mono and poly, your LDL for 60 to 70% of people, observationally, is going to be higher. About 30% of people, LDL doesn't move. And you're like, okay, I don't know what's going on there. But for a lot of people, LDL goes up when you eat more saturated fat and you decrease mono and polyunsaturated fat. You will all know, listeners will all know, that I'm no fan of excess polyunsaturated fat, whether it's in the form of fish oils or especially not in the form of seed oils, corn, canola, safflower, sunflower, soybean, grapeseed, whatever. So that, those will lower your LDL, but not in a good way. We'll talk about that. But if you also have less monounsaturated fat, so if you decrease, if you don't have a lot of olive oil, which I'm actually not, not a huge fan of either, or if you're not eating a lot of avocados, your LDL will go a little higher. And I think this is just a physiologic reaction in most people's bodies. There's a lot of reasons this could be happening. There's, there's actual, you know, there's transcription factors, there's elements that are responsive in the genome to saturated fat that get turned on when you have more saturated fat. There's something called the homeoviscous model of membranes that's been promulgated recently, whereby people suggest that when you're eating more saturated fat, that your body has to increase the LDL to carry more of the cholesterol molecule to make the membranes have a uh, standard level of viscosity, fluidity in the membrane, because we know that if you have more saturated fat in your membrane, perhaps it's more stiff membranes. You need to put in more cholesterol molecules, which are steroid moiety, to give the membrane more fluidity. So there's, it's possible the body is shifting LDL levels to keep membranes the same level of fluidity. And in the reverse can happen too. If you're eating more monounsaturated fat or more polyunsaturated fat, those mono and polyunsaturated fats end up in the membrane. They make the membrane more fluid, and then the body can lower the amount of cholesterol because it pulls it out because it's trying to make the membrane a little less fluid, a little more uh, robust because of these, potentially, these kinked fatty acids. It has to do with the way the fatty acid looks in three dimensions. That monounsaturated fat or polyunsaturated fat has a curved tail, so it makes the membrane a little bit less packed and maybe a little more fluid. So that's the homeoviscus model, but this is all speaking to the question of why LDL may rise on carnivore ketogenic diet. I think the answer is probably because there's more saturated fat in the diet, and relative to mono and poly. And whether that's because of a homeoviscus model, or steroid responsive binding elements in the genome, or what, we don't fully understand, but that happens. What also happens in the lean mass hyperresponder phenotype, which I think is a healthy quote-unquote phenotype, is that triglycerides usually go down, and HDL usually goes up, and fasting insulin goes down. So those are, that's the direction we want in everything to move. So this is what gets ignored by all of Western medicine, and I say all you know, with a little bit of a, a smirk. I think probably there are increasing physicians who understand this now, so not all of Western medicine, but the majority of Western medicine sees LDL, becomes myopic and hyperfocused, and doesn't, doesn't think, what are your triglycerides, what's your HDL, what's the ratio, or check a fasting insulin. I think the world would change in Western medicine if they just checked a fucking fasting insulin. <laughs> uh, right? So. That's, that, that's predictably what happens when you do this in the lean mass hyperresponder. So the lean mass hyperresponder phenotype is a term coined by Dave Feldman, which is low triglycerides, high HDL, elevated LDL. So I've seen my LDL go all over the place, right? When I was carnivore, it was higher than it is now that I'm eating carbohydrates, maybe because I'm eating more saturated fat, maybe because ketones also can contribute to the development of LDL, because there's another pathway by which ketones share the same common pathway with acetyl-CoA, which can also be more made into cholesterol and increase your LDL. So ketosis probably increases LDL. Fasting increases LDL. We know that much. So again, there are a lot of mechanisms to increase LDL, but the foundational question is, do we believe 
that low-density lipoprotein, a spherical molecule that carries triglycerides and cholesterol, is inherently atherogenic or damaging to the endothelium, the inside of an artery? I believe the answer is no, but many would disagree with me, and we need many more of those debates. I think there's a lot of good evidence that that particle has not been indicted fully. See, that particle is definitely causing atherosclerosis. It gets involved, but is it a fireman or the arsonist? Right? Just because it shows up at the fire doesn't mean it's actually causing the fire. This is nuanced, but it's important to understand because most of Western medicine is predicated on the notion that you have more LDL, you're going to have more atherosclerosis. And there's studies ongoing now. Dave Feldman is doing one with image, imaging. So he's doing CT coronary angiography in people who are lean mass hyperresponders and following them longitudinally to see are they going, are they going to uh, have more atherosclerosis with higher levels of LDL relative to another cohort? I think the answer will be no, but we'll, we'll see. It's just a hypothesis now. And if they don't, then, then it's really going to shape the foundations of LDL as a primary mover, or ApoB, which is essentially synonymous with LDL, if you guys have heard of ApoB. ApoB is an apolipoprotein that's on the LDL surface. So where does this leave us? It leaves us in the fact that I think it's evolutionarily consistent for humans to seek saturated fat and to have lower amounts of monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fat. The problem for me is that I haven't found an indigenous population that are lean mass hyperresponders. And this isn't to say they don't exist. There's not a lot of indigenous populations left in the world. So my ancestors, if we could find my ancestors somewhere, like we trace it back, and whether it's Northern Europeans 50, 60,000 years ago, or before they left Africa, like somewhere in my lineage is probably an indigenous person who is eating meat and organs and fruit and honey, and they have a high LDL too, right, quote unquote. But we haven't seen that yet, because what we see in the Hadza, what we see in most hunter-gatherers is a lower LDL of around 100. My LDL runs about 220 right now, but then my triglycerides are 70, my HDL is usually 85, and this is milligrams per deciliter. Moving back to the last thing that I'll move on from this question, is that when LDL goes up, the particle size doesn't, is what increases not the particle number usually. And people want to say, oh, particle number is important. I'm actually not convinced that particle number matters that much. Um, I think it's all or mostly metabolic health. And are you insulin resistant or not? Are you metabolically healthy or not? What is your passing insulin? So when I did my, uh, my lipid panel where my LDL was very high, my LDL was massive. I think it was 24.7 nanometers, which is a huge particle of LDL. It's like I, almost out of the reference range. It's like such a big particle of LDL. A large LDL particle would be like 22 to 23 nanometers, and it was 24.7 nanometers. So, big balls. <laughs> Spherical LDL balls. Okay, next question. Question about iodine, uh, which I don't hear much about in this crowd. My name is Lotta Mober, by the way. I'm working finance in Chicago. Um, iodine, do we need it? There's such thing as iodine deficiency, and if we do need it, where do you get iodine from if you don't eat uh, seafood, you don't take kelp, etc.? Great question. So I think this is a, uh, a common misconception. Humans definitely need iodine, and there's iodine in meat, there's iodine in organs, and I think that it's often been incorrectly calculated. If you look at iodine levels in meat and organs, they're wildly disparate, like depending on the study. So I think we need more research to say how much iodine is actually in liver, how much iodine is actually in red meat, because I think when people say there's no iodine in red meat, like uh, where does the lion get their iodine from? You know, where do other animals get their iodine from? Because they have thyroids too, right? There's a lot of carnivorous animals that don't eat any seafood, 
they're not iodine deficient. So where are they getting? Well, there's plenty of iodine in animal foods, but if you look at the analysis, whether it's the USDA or whoever's done this, it's pretty shoddy. It's widely all over the place. So the RDA from iodine a day is like 150 micrograms, and so you can get some of that from sea salt. I think someone did the analysis with Redmond, and it was like 10 grams of Redmond salt a day. Almost got you to 150 micrograms of iodine a day with that salt. Um, and I could compare, I'm not sure how the iodine in Redmond compares to the iodine in like Malzahn salt that I have over there, but I, there's actually a pretty robust amount of iodine in muscle meat and in organs. And iodine deficiency is the result of goitrogens. It's the result of compounds like sulforaphane and other isothiocyanates that are going to steal iodine or compete with iodine level of thyroid. So you don't see iodine deficiency in animal eaters unless they are eating paltry amounts of animals and lots of super healthy vegetables and roots. That's obviously, I'm, I'm being facetious here, right? Because like unless they're eating a lot of kale and salads and things like that. So it's this balance. The more animal foods you have, the better you do. And the more you're gonna be fine in terms of iodine. And the more, the more cassava, the more kale, the more goitrogenic foods you eat, the less you're gonna do well. So we see iodine deficiency mostly in um, indigenous cultures who are eating mainly roots and a lot of cassava and stuff that doesn't have much iodine. And, and they have goitrogens and isothiocyanates that are going to inhibit absorption, or the, the compounds are going to compete level of thyroid. And then also, these people don't have a lot of meat. I mean, you, a lot of these cultures around the world, they, just, they don't eat a lot of meat. I was listening to a podcast yesterday, a couple days ago, with uh, a Sherpa named Perja. And he was saying that in, in, um, in Nepal, growing up, he, he only got to eat meat on holidays, like Christmas, or a couple times a year. I think this is the way a lot of the world is. They only eat meat at like super special occasions. Does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. I wonder where the idea comes from that we need the seafood and or kelp supplement or, of course, put iodine in your salt, right? Like, I would be with my parents and I want the Himalaya salt and they'd be like, no, you should eat table salt. This has got iodine. It's good for you, you know? Um, probably because most of the world wasn't getting enough animal products, right? They're, they're eating breads, they're eating pasta. I mean, you look at the food, foods that are fortified, you've got bread and cereals which are fortified, and I think most people were eating most of their diet as that around the turn of the century, around 1900. Meat is expensive. And probably they alleviated the iodine deficiency once they got hold of fish. That was the first thing you get, right? Yeah, if you yeah. climb up the income ladder, first you get fish and chicken, and then you get the Then meat. you get the beef, yeah, yeah. But I, actually, I mean, today beef is cheaper than, than fish most of the time. You can get grass-fed ground beef for $7 a pound. It's hard to get any good salmon for that. But yeah, you can get it from seafood, but I don't think you need it. I don't really eat seafood that much, and I've never had a problem. And you would see it. Um, iodine is also notoriously difficult to check in the blood. Basically, you just want to watch the thyroid hormones. You want to watch the TSH, the free T3, the free T4, and maybe reverse T3. And then from there, you can tell. And you know, when you see, oh, it's just it's fine. It's never a problem. Oh, this person's not iodine deficient. So you kind of get back to the hair mineral analysis. People do like, oh, your urinary iodine's low, therefore you're deficient in iodine. It's like, what is it going to fix? How are we going to know? There's no metric you can look at if your thyroid's already healthy. Yeah, who's up? Hi, uh, Kendall from Seattle. Um, I was curious what you think about the higher levels of deuterium in fruit. You know, I did a podcast about deuterium many years ago, and I'm pretty skeptical about it now. I haven't really gone down the rabbit hole much in the past on deuterium, but it just, a lot of the pieces of the puzzle don't add up for me with deuterium. Yeah, they just don't. I'd like to recheck my deuterium. I had a very low deuterium diet at the time, and uh, my deuterium levels, when I checked, were like 140. Like, it should have been much lower. I've had friends that have done deuterium-depleted water, and they get super low, and they feel like shit. So I don't know. I, I'm not convinced that like um, deuterium is that bad for humans. I don't know. We probably shouldn't be eating tons of it, but 
Uh, I, I'm just not convinced that it's, it's the end all and be all like, like you might suggest. And there's so many other benefits to fruit, um, in my opinion. And I've actually, I, I have a lot of skepticism about how they're checking these deuterium levels in fruit and water. Like, if you really look into it, the way that, that you measure the deuterium is a little bit, a little bit shady, too. So, mm, yeah. yeah. So I wouldn't worry about it. Yeah. I don't worry about it much. Here, and then we'll go over Hi, Paul Ray from Orange County, California. Uh, so I have a long history of women in my family getting breast cancer. My mom's had it twice, 50s and 60s. My aunts have passed away from it. So obviously diet, lifestyle, mental health, all that. So my question is, so I'm 33. My doctor wants me to get a mammogram. So how can I um, like check on that You know, over as the years go on? Like what can I do? Like blood work, what should I be looking at just to, you know, analyze it, make sure I'm not getting any cancers? Okay. I'm really worried about it. Okay, so I can't give medical advice, but oh. we'll speak in general terms, right? Being someone with a similar family history, I would wonder if anyone in your family's had a BRCA gene test. Has anyone been tested for the BRCA gene? Is that for to see the, if the, the gene BRCA, was passed? The BRCA or? gene, yes. Yes, my mom has. She has BRCA. No, so no. she doesn't have that okay. gene. Yet. What about your grandmother? No? I don't know. What about you? I haven't gotten that. So is that something? I don't know. Is that something I should get tested? Yeah, yeah, I would test what it. What is it called? The BRCA. Oh, okay. Yeah, there's a number of polymorphisms in, the, in that family of genes, yeah. And it's breast and ovarian cancer. So that's the first step. Because most breast cancer is sporadic. It's not BRCA. But if you do have a BRCA mutation, and men can have BRCA mutations too, there is a much higher incidence of breast cancer. So in humans with BRCA mutations, there's a real argument for prophylactic mastectomy, prophylactic ovarectomy at some point. So removal of the breast and the ovaries, potentially. If there's none of that in the family, then, you, then, you're, then, you're, thinking, um, then you're thinking, oh, this is sporadic breast cancer. It's one of the more common cancers for women in general, right? Men, it's prostate, women, it's breast, maybe endometrial, maybe ovarian. And so it's this, it's, I would think of things in terms of what you do for all cancers, right? What, what is going to increase your chance of having cancer? Obesity, insulin resistance are the first ones. Nutrient deficiency. There's a strong association with vitamin D deficiency. Whether or not that's causal and mechanistically linked is questionable, but I think you'd want to make sure you're in the sun. You know? um, and what is the mainstream medical advice right now? Stay out of the sun. So, and, I mean, this is complete conjecture, but is there potentially a benefit to having sun on your breasts? Is there a benefit to having sun on your body, right? Like, how many women can sun, you know, safely, like naked, right? Like, who knows? That's completely conjecture. Who knows if there's anything to that? But um, that, I think that there's, there's a lot of lifestyle things to do there. And beyond that, there's maybe some more sophisticated things you could do that I'm not aware of because I'm not an oncologist and I don't work with people with breast cancer. So there's probably more. But I think that, um, you know, having a mammogram is a reasonable thing to do. Um, depending on the results, then you have more complex questions to ask and where you go from there. But uh, I think that in general, cancer is something that kills humans, and um, I think that one of the major risk factors is insulin resistance and obesity. Those are obviously linked, and, and then vitamin D deficiency. So get in the sun, you know, maybe a tanning bed. I actually don't fear tanning beds, especially if you can get in there naked. Who knows, you know? I don't know. I think it would be very interesting. It's not outside the realm of possibility. And then I think from there, nutrient deficiencies and circadian rhythms. I believe there's research about this, so I'd have to dig into it a little bit, that shift workers, people that have disordered circadian rhythms, have higher incidence of cancer, too. So, that is your question? Yeah. You're good. Uh, Tamar from Los Angeles. Um, and then, so you used to have a sensitivity to dairy 
and now you're saying you're okay with it. But um, I was taught that when you do an antibody test, like a food sensitivity test through antibodies, that once you have the antibodies for it, you will always have the antibodies for it and always have a reaction. So you're kind of saying otherwise, right? Yes. So you can, but like, have you tested your antibodies? I don't for think food sensitivity tests are worth anything. Really? Yeah, they're IgG. So IgG and IgG4 antibodies, like, it's pretty much worthless. So it's confusing for people. Like, I found I, it so helpful. I don't think it's that helpful for people. I think maybe it's helpful because it tells you to cut a bunch of stuff out, and then you cut stuff out, and it's kind of like yeah. Like I mean, for her, for her meat thing, they they do meat proteins like different, like yeah. lamb, chicken. It's just tricky because you have IgG four antibodies. Those can be blocking antibodies. They can be reactive antibodies. It's yeah, not, it's not like perfect, no. but. I mean, there, it's like people, a good like pathway. I don't think so. I think it gets people too myopically focused on the foods that are on the sensitivity test, and then they'll see what's on the sensitivity test, and they'll say, "Oh, I'm not allergic to almonds, so I can eat almonds." And I'm like, "Well, I don't think almonds are good for humans, no matter what, even if you don't have an IgG antibody to it." Just because kale isn't on your thing, I don't think you should do that. So, if you, I think it's like a shortcut that misleads people, and they get very confused by food sensitivity tests. I think that really, it's double blind uh, elimination diets, which is just basically like. Just eliminate things and then see what you do and then reintroduce them one at a time. There's a potential that there's this thing called MRT testing, immediate release testing, which is going to test adaptive instead of just intrinsic or innate immunity. Because if you're just looking at IgG in a body, you're just looking at the innate immune system, you're not looking at the well, adaptive IgG immune system. and I think IgM. I haven't seen And then there's too like much. E- equal vocal, there's like three, it's by Cyrix Labs. Yeah, I mean, IgM it's would pretty be good. Cute. It's still, immunoglobulins are still the innate immune system. There's nothing adaptive in there. It's hard to look at NK cells, neutrophils. How are those reacting, right? So that's the tricky part. And I don't think anybody's really got that dialed. It's like, they want to pretend it does so they can give you this $450 test and tell you like, oh, you're allergic to kidney beans, but you can eat black beans and lentils. Like, bullshit. Yeah, I mean, I'm still getting them off that time. Because I've taken the Cyrex Array 10. Yeah. If you take it multiple times, you'll get different results. Someone in the back is saying um, that if you take it multiple times, you might get different results. But I'm, I, I think my answer is I'm not a fan of food sensitivity testing. I think it's misleading for people. And I think the dairy uh, sensitivity that I have, which seems to be eczema, is variable. You know, something changed. Maybe I wasn't as strict about raw. Um, what I've done now is just, it's mostly, it's all raw milk. It's not so much raw cheese. And in the past, I don't know, maybe I wasn't doing enough raw milk. And, um, maybe I was doing raw cheese, but to get cheese, you have to heat the milk, so it's raw, who knows? Because a lot of people are sensitive to eggs. That's like a really common allergy. Right. So you think they can overcome that? Well, egg, egg white is more common than egg yolk because of the albumin in the egg white, and it's possible. Right, the protein. Yeah. yeah. I think a lot of things are possible if you remove lectins. It kind of goes back to what we were saying about meat being stuck in the stomach. Like, are there lectins and plants? This is all hypothetical. This is the kind of stuff that I think Western medicine really needs to sort of think about and digging into, but... Um, are there things in your diet that are creating inflammation, or I should say damage to the gut lining, that are making you more sensitive to remove those? It's totally possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just scared of dairy. Like, oh, like, oh, yeah. I can't but, do it. But I'm going to give you some kefir right now. Like, go drink some kefir. It's like fermented. Go do it. Hey, Paul. Uh, Chris from the UK. Um, I was plant-based for many years, and I was getting very sick. Um, I thought I was following the healthiest diet possible because of the mainstream media. And that gave me a mental health problem because I was in this spiral of not knowing what to do. And then it was only about November last year when I found you and a couple of others, Liver King, 
Matt Blackburn. And between all of that knowledge that I consumed, I realised that I'd been lied to about everything. <laughs> Switched everything around. Within 48 hours, pretty much all of my symptoms had disappeared. My question is, um, Matt Blackburn would say that for somebody that's had quite severe symptoms, being on that sort of lifestyle, he highly recommends supplements as a part of the healing process, so particularly vitamin E, K2, magnesium. I know you're not a big fan, so what, what do you think about supplementing for healing when you're changing lifestyle? Is the, is the thought that your gut is so damaged that you can't get it from food? I don't understand, because I am not a fan of supplementing vitamin E. There's so much vitamin E in animal fat. Um, Again, this is one thing that USDA doesn't understand, um, that, that there's, there's, there's plenty of vitamin E in animal fat. So I don't think anybody's going to be deficient in the vitamin E. And there's all kinds of people who are like talking about, oh, you need this type of vitamin E and camas cofferol. It's like, just, just eat animal fat. You know, it's fine. Um, it's a fat-soluble vitamin. Of course it's going to be there. And it's probably going to have more K2 than advertised and in a more bioavailable form. And then magnesium, I think, is widely misunderstood. Everybody thinks, you need to get 400 milligrams of magnesium. Well, guess what? Like, good luck getting 400 mag milligrams of magnesium from any food on the planet in a day. It's like half a pound plus of peanut butter if you just look at raw magnesium and then you know that legumes are not going to be bioavailable. So you're never going to absorb 400 milligrams of magnesium from half a pound of peanut butter in a day. Who can eat half a pound of peanut butter a day? Like, you know, people will be like, I'd love to eat half a pound of peanut butter a day, but you're not going to feel good eating half a pound of peanut butter every day. Like, you cannot get the RDA from magnesium. There's clearly something else going on there. Nobody's really talking about this. So it's like, for me, it's not about how much magnesium you get. It's how much is bioavailable and what's in your other diet, what's inhibiting that. Because we certainly know that phytic acid and oxalates can bind to these anions, these, these cations of magnesium, and pull them out of your body. So like, I think most people are losing the magnesium from their kale, from their almonds, from their peanut butter. They're not absorbing any of it. The lowest magnesium I've ever had was when I was a vegan. I was eating tons of kale and almonds, and it's horrible. So I, I don't think... For very long, you're going to need supplements. Um, I think it just creates dependency, and I think when you start taking supplements, it often imbalances other things for people. So K2, vitamin E, magnesium, I would say, I don't think you're going to need it. Um, and my suspicion is that no one is going to be able to prove to you that you do with lab work and say, hey, look, you're actually deficient. Then when I supplement you, look, you're actually better. It's just sort of a, um, it's just sort of a, it's just a, they're just going to expect you to take it on faith. And to me, I don't think you need it. But yeah, I think it's just, you're going to get much more of it from food. And then that begs the important question, which is what foods are going to have those things and why are those foods deprioritized in your diet? Thank you. Hi, I'm Andreas, all the way from Vienna, Austria. And, you know, even more than why in my diet perspective, you made me appreciate nature more. And so I made it my morning routine to go out into the forest, you know, every, every day back home. And this, this was like a major change, uh, best uh, lifestyle change ever. Love it. So thank you for that. Yeah, yeah, love it. Um, my question is about low baseline blood sugar levels. Mm -hmm. Because we, of course, we know that very high baseline blood sugar levels are bad. What about very low baseline blood sugar levels? I asked this because I did uh, the CGM thing, mm -hmm. you know, you talked about it in a podcast. And of course, it's not that accurate, but my baseline was um, 
63 or something. Like every every time when I wake up or when I didn't eat for hours. And I had to stop a full-on carnivore for three months experiment because I was all the time low energy, dizzy, because I was only eating meat, organs and fat, no carbs whatsoever. And I think I need the carbs because of I have this low baseline blood sugar. Is that uh, bad that I have this very low or is it normal or can you talk about this? Yeah, sure. What CGM are you using? I, it's called Veri. Mm -hmm. It's from a Finland company because NutriSense doesn't uh, ship to Austria. Is it a Freestyle Libre or a Dexcom? Yes, it's a Libre. Yeah. Libre? Yeah. Did you check it with a finger stick? Did you do a finger stick to make sure that the CGM was accurate? Uh, no. Okay. No, I didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You I have didn't. to do that. So that's, I think the CGM companies don't talk about this enough. So the first question is, so a continuous glucose monitor is a, a, little, a little disc that goes on your skin with a, a plastic stylet that goes in the interstitial space and it can sample glucose levels. It's like a flash monitor. It takes it every five minutes. The problem with these is that they're, they kind of have a variable baseline. Sometimes they're high, but they could also be low. So when I've done these in the past, you put it on and you're like, my fasting blood sugar is 110, what the heck's going on? Then you do a finger stick and your fasting blood sugar is 80. You're like, okay. Then you do another one, oh, it's 115, oh, it's 85. Okay, you gotta adjust, you have to recalibrate the CGM. So I don't know if this is the problem, but I think you should do another CGM and do a finger stick. Do three or four finger sticks and make sure to correlate that with the CGM. Because the finger stick's pretty accurate. Those are much more active than CGM, at least for the baseline. Then once you have the baseline, you'll be in a good spot. So my suspicion is that you felt dizzy because of the carbohydrate lack, because of the electrolytes. Maybe not the low blood sugar. Um, in general, what happens to people when they go fully zero carb is the fasting blood sugar is actually higher than it is when they're eating carbohydrates because you become physiologically insulin resistant and you have a higher fasting blood sugar. When I was full carnivore, the fasting blood sugar was 95, 96. You add in carbohydrates and it's 76 the next day. Now you're getting spikes, but probably my area under the curve all day is much lower. My A1C went down. So hemoglobin A1C is an average 90-day measure of your blood sugar and my hemoglobin A1C went from 5.4, 5.3 on carnivore to like 4.7. So my average blood sugar was much lower when I added carbohydrates because your fasting goes down and the majority of the day you're in that fasting state. So my suspicion, if I'm gonna like Sherlock Holmes it, is that the baseline on your CGM was an accurate finger stick to confirm and then just obviously add more carbs fixes everything. Yes. Yeah. Because uh, yeah, it's a bit annoying that I need carbs, you know, to, to you know, think clearly and stuff. I can't really uh, work out in the morning. Why without... is it annoying? I don't know. For me, it's annoying. I don't want to just wake up and be like, hey, yeah, let's do it. Well, I mean, if you eat carbohydrates the day before, you know, you'll be fine the next morning. You won't have to do anything. You can fast in the morning, you'll be better. But I do think that, like, man, put some honey in your diet. You have a mango over there for you. Right? Yeah, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Is, okay. there, is there another reason you don't eat carbs? No, not really. I, I'm not that kind of a fruits guy. I've never been. Well, no. but, uh, <laughs> I, I'm changing because I read your second book, the cookbook. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah, I want to experiment with fruits more yeah, yeah. and yeah. see how it goes. Because yeah. I was eating millets to, to, for carbs, yeah. but I don't think that's, that's no, good. No, I mean, millet, I, I'm not mistaken, millet has like isothiocyanates, and there's, there's some problems with millet. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I would do. Uh, I mean, maybe white rice, but every time I say that, people are like, "Oh, Paul Sarah, this is white rice, is okay." Like I'm really not a fan of white rice, but 
pretty innocuous for some people. It's not my favorite, but I, I think fruit is great. And you're, have you been eating fruit in Costa Rica? Yes, of course. What do you have? Papayas, mangoes. Yeah, amazing. How do you feel? Amazing. Okay. Yeah. Every time, yeah. Full stop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you. I will, I will check the levels if they're accurate yeah, next yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. It's probably going to be hard to get food in Austria, but hopefully, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Maybe Zane has a question? Yeah, go for it. Hey, Paul. This side of the room needs to get it, too, so we'll bring it over here soon, too. My name's Michael Weber. I'm from South Florida. Uh, my question is, I'm a big fan of raw eggs, and I hear you talk a lot about the egg whites. And I've been trying to do a lot of, like, you know, listening to my body. And when I have, a, you know, 6 to 12 raw eggs in the morning, I feel great. I'm curious what I should be looking out for, for side effects, for things you talk about, like the albumin, abdomen, mm -hmm. etc. So two things with eggs. We were talking about this on the car ride back from Montezuma last night. I'm not a huge fan of egg yolks because most chickens are fed corn and soy or wheat. And the women that I that did the recipes for the cookbooks, they're actually Armstrong on the farm. And they fed their chickens different feed and they able to lower the linoleic acid in egg yolks. So I am really interested in the amount of linoleic acid in egg yolks. And you think evolutionarily, like, would we eat 12 eggs a day? That's, that almost probably never happened. You know? Like, eggs are rare in nature occasionally, and wild animals, I suspect, my hypothesis is that the amount of linoleic acid in egg yolk in a wild animal is going to be lower than a domesticated chicken. So my concern, for myself at least, is eating a lot of raw egg yolks that can increase the amount of linoleic acid. So one thing you might do, and I think we need to develop a some sort of an assay for this that's better, is like a fat biopsy to really look at linoleic acid in the fat. That's the only way to really get some like linoleic acid load. I'd be curious if that's going up and if that's a problem. In terms of the raw egg white, there, it's pretty much fat that contains abdomen with fine biotin, so you can develop a biotin deficiency. That's not a good thing. Hair, skin, nails are the colloquial things. I mean, you're good, but again, like, could it be better? Or other things would be better. So I just wouldn't do raw egg yolks. You know, good friends with liver king, Brian Johnson. He eats a lot of raw egg, uh, raw, raw, raw egg whites. I'm like, I don't think so, man. I don't think it's a good idea. So. Um, yeah, I just, I wouldn't do it. Um, I think it's also maybe a little problematic for digestion, so I would experiment. And then the question is like, why are you eating all the egg yolks? Could you get it from liver? Maybe an experiment, see how you feel. Because 12 raw eggs a day is a lot, in my opinion. You know the difference I would have. Okay, yeah, to follow up, I feel like when I first heard you start talking about that, I was, you know, interested and wanted to kind of experiment. And that's why I've been doing it a little bit extreme in the other direction. Yeah, yeah. Like, hey, can I get some negative effects? I feel so good. <laughs> and like, my nails grow so fast. My hair. This is, you know, a few months. That's a couple days. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you. And so that's what made me start to question a little bit. Like, maybe is there any sort of specificity between people or? Who knows? Who knows? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I don't know. Cool. There's not a. not an easy thing to test. <laughs> but what if you? What if your chickens don't eat corn? What's that? What if the chickens don't eat corn? Uh, then you just have to know what the chickens are fed, yeah. right? Because they can be also fed wheat, which is also kind of high in linoleic acid. So it's hard to get a chicken that doesn't want a lot of linoleic acid. It's just really hard, unless the chicken is eating like crickets. It's really hard. Awesome. Thanks. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, I try to avoid, Nate from California, I try to avoid antibiotics whenever possible, but like probably everyone in this room at some point or another it's happened. Is there anything that you recommend? after somebody goes through a course of antibiotics, if, if anything? Uh, time in the sun, time in the forest, maybe a little dirt. So nothing like diet-wise? No. Okay. No. Any particular reason? I just don't think we really know. Like, 
probiotics, yes, no, who knows. Um, maybe fermented dairy if you tolerate it, like raw dairy, maybe. But I think the body is going to recover that on its own. And, uh, as far as I can tell, your, your environment is as much a determinant of your microbiome as what you eat. Like what you inhale, you know, being around a waterfall yesterday changed your microbiome. Uh, you know, I think your body will bring it back. Yeah. And, um, yeah, but I think, I don't know, this is a controversial statement, but I think less and less that, that humans need antibiotics. Like, there's a lot of times that we could do without them, but maybe again, that's not medical advice. I'm really tired and like massive health. But I think about the times in my life I've taken antibiotics, and I wish I'd not done it almost every single time. Um, I got really uh, pushed into it in medical school when I had an abscess in my leg that was caused by an orthopedic surgeon injecting steroids and what he thought was Baker cyst. It was actually a ganglion cyst. Then I was forced to take antibiotics, and it was a total nightmare for me. Um, yeah, and then I recently took a couple doses of antibiotic uh, because I had like, a, an abscess in the bottom of my foot. I stepped on a patrol spine here in Costa Rica, and I didn't get it out all the way, but really the answer there was just incision and drainage, and we're been fine. Um, so I don't know, it's very controversial. I think that people will be angry in the podcast I say don't take antibiotics or anything, but the human body is pretty freaking resilient. Uh, I think a lot of times we can talk to them, but I don't know if will get in trouble. Oh, just like if, I mean, infections when they say like, oh, this thing is infected, so you like have to take antibiotics. What kind of infection? Uh, like you know, a cut on your knee or something. Bullshit. Yeah. Hundred <laughs> yeah. percent bullshit. Like, okay. that, that, not medical advice. You didn't need antibiotics. Right? Like, like, I had, yeah, seen. I had a friend who's a surfer. He might be here. I don't know. He had a huge, like, you know, cut on his arm. It was a huge boil. It was super red. And he shows it to me, and I was like, I don't know, man, maybe. He's like, I'm not going to take him. I was like, all right. It was fine. If you freaking healed it, you know? Like, I'm not saying everybody's going to be like that. I think that your metabolic health matters. But a cut on your knee, no way. What about No. No, this is a very controversial position that I hold. I'm not a pediatrician. I'm not giving medical advice to anybody's kids. But um, strep heals on its own. And I think that there's some data that if you get antibiotics, it lessens the incidence of autoimmune disease. But in what population, right? In what population can we, maybe in a metabolically healthy population, that is not going to happen in the same sense. And I, we don't really have studies to suggest that, but that's the reason you get antibiotics with Shepherd is to lessen the incidence of scarlet fever or medical fever or anything like this. And it's like, that's a complex thing. You know, I'm still not convinced that that's necessary. I think that we've all had strep throat in times in our lives and not taking antibiotics because you never actually got a culture and you were fine. You didn't die from strep throat. Nor did anybody in this room, I hope, have immunologic consequences. But then that really gets into like a huge rabbit hole, which sounds semi-conspiratorial, like how are we raising our kids? You know, are they in the sun enough? Are they eating a good diet? Are they eating junk food? And so then, then you can make the argument like, well, should you give antibiotics to kids if they're eating junk food? Maybe. But I think in the ideal case scenario, which people will argue with me and say doesn't exist, but in the ideal, ideal case scenario, I think there's an argument to be made, or at least a hypothesis to be examined, that maybe you don't even need antibiotics for Chef Rowe, and that other the kid, maybe there wouldn't be an increased incidence of autoimmunity. And the foundational question there, which I think is fascinating, is why do kids develop autoimmunity and react in the first place? Isn't that something you should think about? That's a great question, because people do ask about Chef Rowe a lot. Is there a point at which you'd say, like, let's say you've got extreme pain, you got fever, stuff like that, at that you point? you accept it, right? So if you have, if you have, you know, tachycardia, if you have fever, if you have signs of sepsis, fine, you know, but um, I think that, you know, we're in Costa Rica, if you go to the urgent care, 
and you show them like a little cut, they're gonna give you antibiotic. You know, if you can show up with diarrhea, which is probably food poisoning, they're gonna give you diarrhea. Where in fact, there's really no evidence that like treating traveler's diarrhea or food poisoning with antibiotics does shit. You know, so like what? They're gonna, they're gonna give it to you. So Western medicine in general is all too happy to give you antibiotics. And they're not liable for anything that happens to you afterwards in your gut or anything. They don't have to worry about any of that. They have to worry about the fact that if you have a consequence of them not giving you antibiotics, but they're not liable for the other side. So it's like, I definitely think we overuse them as my statement before I get this. So, you've unpacked this a few times, but there's a lot of uh, reported benefit to polyunsaturated fats um, creating or allowing for uh, insulin sensitivity in a fat cell. Whereas your argument sure. is, is saturated fat allows for some insulin resistance, which is beneficial for hyperplasia versus hypertrophy in fat yes. cells. Yes. Would you mind just, for the hundredth time, unpacking that? Yeah, that's a very complex question um, for people, so I'll back up so people understand it. So, um, I believe that insulin resistance begins in the adipocyte, begins in the fat cell. And the way the fat cells become appear to become broken is that they lose the capacity to divide. So there's hypertrophy and hyperplasia. And I always get the two mixed up. So one of them is the growth of the fat cell, ballooning, and one of them is the actual division of the fat cell into more fat cells. So fat cells that balloon and don't divide are problematic. That is when fat cells become diseased. That's clearly associated with an insulin-resistant phenotype. They start to spew inflammatory mediators, cytokines, and free fatty acids, which signal to the rest of the body that you want to become insulin-resistant, but that's pathology. So a fat cell that cannot divide appears to be the root or one of the proximate steps of insulin-resistant metabolic dysfunction. So the question is, how does that happen? How does the fat cell get to the point that it can't divide, that it gets stuck and it's balloons and balloons and balloons, like the guy in Monty Python who puts a little thing on his tongue and then just explodes, right? The Mr. Fat Guy, I forget his name. Somebody might remember that guy. Does anybody Chris, Mr. Creosol. Mr. Who? Creosol. Mr. Creosol? Yeah. All right, so that's the character in Monty Python where he just puts this little thing super the, fat, and like this one little thing goes and he just explodes. The, the wafer like, thin mint. It was a thin mint, yes, on his tongue and he yes. explodes. Um, so, how does the fat cell get like that? Well. There's good evidence that the breakdown products of linoleic acid are associated with that phenotype in the fat cell. These are things like 4-HNE, 13-HODE, or 13-HODE. And so linoleic acid is polyunsaturated fat. So we see, okay, the breakdown products of linoleic acid are associated with that pathological phenotype. That doesn't look good for linoleic acid. And then you learn that fats like linoleic acid actually allow the fat cell to be insulin sensitive, which sounds like a good thing until you realize that insulin sensitivity in a fat cell makes the fat cell grow. Because what happens when insulin, something is insulin sensitive, it grows. Insulin is not necessarily anabolic, it's anti-catabolic. So when a fat cell is insulin sensitive, the fat cell is not going to be able to stop growing. It's just gonna, it's not gonna be able to like shrink or become, you know, it's like, it's not gonna be able to deplete its size. It's not gonna be able to like open the drain of the gate. People think about like a bathtub, right? Insulin doesn't necessarily fill the bathtub with water, but it plugs the drain so nothing else can come out. So when you eat, you have fat, you have carbohydrates, you have nutrients that are going to go into cells in your body, they're gonna go into fat cells. And if the fat cells, the hypothesis is that if fat cells are inappropriately insulin sensitive, they just grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. And then it's a balance, right? Because maybe you have a donut and your fat cells become a little insulin sensitive and then you eat you know, organs and meat and things go back. But if you're constantly doing this thing where you're eating seed oils because they're good for you, quote unquote, 
and they lower your LDL, and everybody knows canola oil is amazing, your cardiologist told you it's good for you, and everybody knows that saturated fat causes insulin resistance in the fat cell, which are, you know, which isn't a good thing, right? Everybody knows saturated fat causes heart disease, and obviously being facetious with all of this. Then if you continue to do that, at some point your fat cells are probably going to pass the point of no return and become a little broken, and that seems to be what happens. So it is true that the level of fat cell, the, the saturated fat does appear to cause insulin resistance, but that's probably a good thing because it, means it doesn't grow, right? It doesn't, it doesn't grow, it shrinks. But this is widely misinterpreted and widely confused by vegans are saying, look, saturated fat clearly causes diabetes. Well, we have so many fucking diabetics here, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's a good thing nobody, you know, these guys are all eating so much saturated fat. Clearly not. So I think that it's an overly simplistic argument that is a really cursory minimal, high-level understanding that's really just completely wrong. So at the level of the fat cell, the way you keep it healthy, I think, is with animal fats and minimal amounts of polyunsaturated fatty acids. Of course, there's some animal fat, and not excess monounsaturated fat either. And the way you disease, the way you develop disease is you get evolutionarily inappropriate levels of linoleic acid, potentially. It's complex. Again, the breakdown products of linoleic acid, 4-HNE, 13-HOD, are associated with all these problems. So it looks to be problematic, it looks to be guilty, but it could just be an inflammatory phenotype or some sort of oxidative stress that's oxidizing linoleic acid that's already in the membrane. But you can pretty much find evidence for every step of the way along the path. Like, if you eat more linoleic acid, you get more linoleic acid in your cell membranes. Okay? That we know. If you have more linoleic acid in your cell membranes, you get more HNE. Okay? <laughs> if you have more HNE, you have more oxidative stress. Okay? If you have more HNE, you have more oxidized LDL, okay? If you have more HNE, you have more diseased fat cells, okay? So it's like A goes to B goes to C goes to D. It's pretty much every step of the way you can draw the story and say, yep, there's evidence for every piece of the puzzle. It's just that people don't see it all together and they can't imagine that something that lowers LDL could be bad for you. This is why the LDL thing is like the major uh, crush or the major, I think, stumbling block for people because they're going to say, no, anything that lowers ApoB must be good for humans. And when you release, when you release the demons, when you exercise the fucking demons of LDL, you realize, oh, holy shit, maybe LDL isn't the end all be all. Maybe rising LDL with such a fact isn't the end of the world. Then you start to, it all starts to make sense because it all has to be this sort of evolutionarily consistent story in my mind. Like, why would something that is in animal food, that is also nutrient rich, that our ancestors see be bad for us? Oh, it's actually not bad for us like we're being told. So when that all makes sense to me, if we believe saturated fat is bad for us, then we have, I have a really hard time understanding any evolutionary story and anthropology and human seeking of meat and like, oh, we're just seeking things that are killing us? Like, humans are thriving and being more fertile and having more babies and growing taller and like being much healthier but also dying from this thing? It doesn't make any sense to me. So it all has to kind of make sense um, because that's, presumably that's how, you know, millions of years of natural evolution would work for us as humans. So, does that make sense, Zing? It makes complete sense. Okay. okay. Does, anybody, does anybody want me to go into more on that? Because, like... I, I would love for you to touch on linoleic acid as far as to, like, does it respond differently in seed oil versus an egg yolk versus in butter versus... In okay, egg? so somebody's asking in the back there if linoleic acid is different in seed oil or is it different in butter or is it different in um, an egg yolk or a seed oil. So, definitely, there's different things we can think of with linoleic acid. Is it possible the linoleic acid is oxidized? Yes. Is the linoleic acid getting more oxidized than the seed oil? Yes. Yeah. Is that a problem? Probably. But is it also possible that linoleic acid in and of itself is a, is, a, is a type of a lipokine, like a hormonal signal, right? 
And in that case, it doesn't really matter if it's in a seed oil or an egg yolk or chicken fat or pork fat. It can still cause problems for humans. So that's very interesting as well. So I think, that, yes, seed oils are probably the worst. There's, there's a compound, I believe it's in canola oil, that's like, frankly, toxic, but they have to detoxify out because we're not supposed to eat rape seeds. It's called posse gold or something like that. I talked about it with Tucker Goodrich um, on one of my podcasts. So there's probably a lot of problems with seed oils that make them particularly bad. Linoleic acid is probably extra oxidized. Linoleic acid in egg yolk is probably not that oxidized because it's got all these intrinsic compounds that are protecting it. But still, I do wonder if, at least for fat loss or for insulin sensitivity, people could delay that or worsen something that's already there or not get to the point where they're healing as much if they're still on bacon fat. Lots of linoleic acid. So I think linoleic acid is linoleic acid, but it could also be more oxidized or come along with things that are also more problematic than seed oils. But I also wouldn't, I wouldn't eat a lot of chicken fat because it's so high in linoleic acid compared to beef fat. That's my problem with olive oil as well. It's like 15, 20% linoleic acid. And that's probably not a big deal if you don't have lots of linoleic acid in your diet otherwise, but then again, it's displacing other more valuable fats. It's a problem. Does that make sense? Yeah. You're up. Hey, Paul. Um, my name is Cassie here from Miami. And I just wanted to share a quick antidote before jumping into my question. I have been battling uh, gut issues for the past two and a half years, which manifested in my skin um, through like bumps all over my face, really bad acne. And back in 2020, my boyfriend Kip and I were vegan for four months and my symptoms got horrible. It was unbearable, could hardly see my face. Um, and Kip was actually introduced to you through a podcast and bought Carnivore Code. And we like immediately flipped to the carnivore diet. Our families think we were a little crazy from going from one extreme to the next, but that's just uh, how we roll when we believe in something. And my symptoms got so much better. It's the only, you know, I tried everything under the sun, you know, topicals, everything um, I could find online. And yeah, it really helped to heal. It wasn't 100% though. Um, so not to get into like a question about microbiome or gut, but if I, you know, to our, our conversation earlier, I don't feel like I am completely thriving yet, but if I wanted to do like a full scan, um, is there a certain type of test in order? There's nothing in particular I'm looking for, but more so like a company. Do you recommend any company that has really good tests out there to do just like a full body scan, figure out what's going on, um, whether it's gut related or not really, like blood tests or anything? Um, you just wanna do lots of labs. Yeah, if there's one that's like more all-encompassing. Uh-huh. Unfortunately, there's nothing I'm aware of that's really all-encompassing. I think blood work can be helpful. Basic blood work would be the CDC, comprehensive metabolic panel, panel, hormones, thyroid, HSCRP, fasting disorders, probably a uric acid. That's basic blood work. I think you'd also want to do um, something like a GI map from Diagnostic Solutions. is a good place to start. It's not a perfect test, but it's reasonable. Um, I think uh, organic acids is helpful as well to kind of like piece together. You're kind of like looking at everything through um, a flurry lens and through a box and nothing's really clear, but you can sometimes get an idea. I think urinary organic acids and urinary mycotoxins is important. A lot of people miss the mycotoxins, that's really critical. And then um, if you really want to ground out, I think you have to look at things like heavy metals. Um, in some way, shape, or form. I don't really think it has to be provoked. I used to think you had to use like DMSA or ETA, but I think you can just do urinary heavy metals, um, lead, cadmium, arsenic, uh, and mercury would be reasonable in your urine. And some people would say, oh, it's, it's not provoked, it's just your recent exposure, but I still think if you have a bunch in your body, um, you'll see it in the urine and then you can go deeper. 
But I think if you do those things, what am I missing? If you do those things, it's a good start of like all the system of your body to get a sense of like what's going on and what might be um, causing a problem. Now, having said that, that's probably $3,000 of labs. Um, and sometimes it's just more effective to, I mean, it sounds like you're doing pretty much everything, but sometimes it's just more effective to like go to Costa Rica and, <laughs> and get in the sun and, you know, jump in a waterfall and eat good food for a few weeks and see how you feel and see if things change. Um, it's probably about the same cost and probably way more fun to just take a couple week vacation in Costa Rica and see, do it as an experiment. But yeah, that's what I would think of for labs. Does that answer your question? Yeah, definitely. Fun? I'll look into some of those. Thank yeah. you. Okay. Appreciate it. Hey, Paul Nikki from Dallas. Um, I find that it's very popular today for people to advocate for starches still for glycogen repletion. In practice, I find that whole sugars, fruits, milk, even cane sugar is far superior. My sleep's better, my performance, athletic performance is better. Can you explain physiologically why that might be the case? Well, I'll just say that I'm not a fan of cane sugar. <laughs> I'm not a fan, I don't know what you mean by whole sugars. So that would be cane sugar or sugar from milk or fruits. Okay, okay, so that, that, that is different, but I, I, I think it's quite interesting if you look at, um, if you look at, um, hey guys, can you keep the side conversations? It's going to keep that, it's going to mess the audio up. Um, the, uh, I think that the, the problem with, it's pretty evident, processed sugar is problematic for humans, there's a lot of good studies on that, so I'd be, I'd be careful with cane sugar, I would, and that's why I'm not a fan of maple syrup, because it's coked and like, problematic there. Um, in terms of glycogen repletion of starch, it's not something I've thought about a lot because I don't do starch and I, I don't feel as good with starch. And I mean, physiologically, it's another step. You have to use amylases, you have to use, you know, enzymes that cut the starch. Basically, when you have starch, there's a long chain of carbohydrates with a variety of different linkages. You're going to have to then chop it up. So if you can get simple sugars in things like fruits, Sort of skipping, skipping steps, so I think it's easier. Um, I, 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 I'd have to see the evidence that people say that point to the evidence that people point to when they say that, that starch is better for glycogen depletion than just fruit. Um, I haven't experienced it physically either. It's interesting that that's your experience that it's fine just to do simple sugars. I do think people fear simple sugars because they conflate simple sugars in fruit with simple sugars in isolation. There's a lot of studies to suggest that the latter is problematic for humans. But if we can accept, again, if we can release, if we can exercise the demon, you know, be gone, Satan, um, cast them out. This really sounds like a cult now. <laughs> um, then, uh, then, then fruit is fair game. And I want you guys all to know that I sent a video of all of us eating organs yesterday to Joe Rogan. He said, you've got a cult. <laughs> and I said, no, and he said, good luck with your cult. <laughs> Ask me questions about how Costa Rica was and like how safe it was because I'm sure they'll come here and like, go to the and the Russians. <laughs> Alright, who's up? How are we on time? Does anybody have time? An hour and ten? Okay, we'll go a little further. Who's up? Alright, what's up, brother? Hey, Paul. I'm Daniel. I come from Colombia. Uh, I was a vegetarian for three years and it almost destroys my gut. And I found out about the carnivore diet, and it really helped me heal. I gained 30 pounds back, so it's been amazing. Thank you. You showed me your transitions. It was yes. Amazing. Yeah. yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. So my question is, I was very much into preparing bone broths because it's very healing and all that. But I've noticed that sometimes when I eat too much collagen, um, I feel the same as if I ate fiber. And I don't know if it has to do with the fact that collagen might be fermentable 
produce isobutyric acid or short-chain fatty acids. So my question is, what, what do you think about it, if, if that could be possible? I think it's totally possible, and um, I think that, how do I say this? Um, so I did, a, I did this on a podcast recently, I talked about the methionine glycine balance. There are studies in mice that if you restrict methionine, the mice live longer. Okay, those are the studies that are cited by people who would say you shouldn't eat methionine, you shouldn't eat meat, it's too high methionine. If you have plant-based protein, even though it makes you far, it gives you bloating, it has less methionine, right? Because you want to be like a mouse and live longer. Of course, what they don't tell you is that there's also studies in mice that if you give the mice glycine to balance the methionine, the mice live longer, right? So clearly, um, human physiology here is probably the same as mice. We know glycine is a critical amino acid for collagen. It's also a critical amino acid for glutathione. And most people who are not in this room and who are living normal lives in society don't get enough glycine because they don't get enough amino acids, because they don't get enough protein. So I think that um, there is a fad, and I will call it a fad, around bone broth. Like, you should get more bone broth. And I think that bone broth is kind of like uh, a little bit of weak sauce. People are like, oh, if you don't eat a steak, you can eat bone broth. And like, vegetarian yoga types can like, eat bone broth, and they don't feel like they're they don't feel like they're as bad, right? They don't feel like they're going to yoga hell or something. <laughs> so like, it's like holier to bone broth. So like, bone broth is like a steak light, except it's not. And if you look at it, like, there's more glycine in a steak than there's methionine. So if you're eating connective tissue in a steak, if you're eating fatty tissue in a steak, if you're eating bone marrow, you're getting, in my opinion, plenty of glycine. I don't actually think anymore. This is an evolution. I think that you need collagen or bone broth or any of that stuff at all. Especially if you're eating those tail and you're getting organs. I mean, if any of you guys chewed the organs yesterday, you're kind of freaking chewy. Like, that's some collagenous tissue, you're fine. And even muscle meat has more glycine than the thiamine. So, I don't think we actually know how much glycine, and I'm talking like significantly. So, muscle meat is like 7 to 8% glycine and like 1.8 to 2.3% thiamine. So, it's three to four times as much glycine as the thiamine in muscle meat. So, listen, they're not feeding rats. Uh, steak and going, oh, this is a high methionine diet, because that diet has glycine, they're just giving it pure methionine. So show me the rats that are fed steak, and then we'll see what happens to their longevity, whether they have low longevity or high longevity. Um, we'll get David Sinclair to do that experiment, I'll let you guys know what happens. But I think that they would have high longevity, because, I mean, a mouse eating steak is like the happiest mouse in the world, right? Can you imagine a rat eating a ribeye? It's like, like, this is the best day of the rat's life. Um, so, I think that people overemphasize bone broth, actually. Um, I think it's great, but it's, it's more necessary if you're not eating a lot of meat. So if you're eating two pounds of meat a day, I don't think you need bone broth. Uh, if you like it and you want to eat it, fine. It's causing GI issues, then there's a signal there that something is a little bit off. And that's, that's, that's a controversial opinion, too. I'm sure I'll piss more people off. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so yeah, much. Yeah. Hey, uh, so Daniel Vitalis says, that he won't eat deer liver in certain parts of the northeast, sure. especially uh, like older animals. Uh -huh. like, I guess that certain region, he's worried about maybe cadmium or something. Something that our ancestors wouldn't have to worry about. Yeah, I guess, yeah probably. Yeah. So, can you talk about like how picky we should be and like how the liver does does it accumulate? Like some people say it does. Oh, I mean, heavy metals can accumulate in the liver for sure. It's just you want to know where you're getting it from. Like white oak has done heavy metal testing on all their organs for us. I'm sure they provide it for you if you want to know. Um, most local small-scale farmers that are regenerative, well, you're not going to have a problem with, or, with metals. Kidneys accumulate more 
heavy metals in the liver, so kidneys usually have twice heavy metals in the liver, so you wouldn't want to make all of your diet kidney. Um, you want to eat a little bit of kidney with a little bit of liver, but I, I think the amount of um, the amount of heavy metals in the liver is is not significant. It's actually significantly lower than things like seafood and other things, which are quite high in many cases. So, I mean, you're looking at things like tuna or even scallops or shellfish. It's, it's usually the cadmium is much higher than those. But if you're hunting deer in the middle of the country, it's like okay, how much? They're basically corn-fed deer. They're just in cornfields, which are full of glyphosate. So I probably wouldn't eat those animals in general, and I might not eat the livers. So yeah, you have to be careful with wild animals too. And in that case, kind of back to like, okay, is a good quality farm really your best bet? But I think that's your point is well taken. Did that answer your question? Yeah, it did. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, in that region, it makes sense. Like, I'm from Arkansas, so we don't have a lot of cornfields or anything. So actually, it's pretty good. Yeah, place and to you, go. it might even be worth testing. You know, sending a liver for testing and seeing what's in it. Yep, yeah, thanks. Let's pass it over to this side of the room because nobody on this side of the room is going to change. Uh, I'm Leonard from uh, Switzerland and I'm eating an animal based diet and I love it. And I, when I'm back home, I even get the majority of my meat from organs, even lung and heart and uh, raw dairy, and that's amazing. So, uh, my question is uh, regarding parasites. Um, so I understand on the one hand that exposure of parasites may not be a problem if we are perfectly healthy, hypothetically, because in nature there's parasites. And on the other hand, I know from farmers that they are having problems with parasites in their animals, specifically with grass-fed, if there is not chickens or anything coming like in regenerative agriculture, eating the parasites. So one thing is, are parasites a problem if I'm exposed to and if I'm perfectly healthy? And the other is like, uh, are they being tested? Because sometimes the, the veterinarian um, from the slaughterhouse, they don't give me the liver because they say, oh, there is something in it, parasites or bacteria. And if I want to be sure, can I do anything to resolve their problem? I heard like minus 30 degree and, and three days freezing will resolve it, but I never seen any evidence. And I would also be curious how you do it with um, heart and soul, like if the deep, uh, the freeze dry process, for example, uh, um, extinguish the, the parasites. Yeah. Yes, the answer to that, the last question is yes, absolutely. Freeze-drying desiccation will eradicate any parasites and all the desiccated organs go through microbiology testing when, before we encapsulate them, so there's not going to be any contamination with bacteria. So there's a lot of rigorous testing when you're making a supplement. So freeze-dried organs are super safe, right? Are they as good as fresh organs? No, fresh organs are the best, whether they're cooked or raw. And so then you're like, okay, freeze-drying is great. We see thousands of comments now, tens of thousands of comments of people who find massive improvements in freeze-drying, but a lot of people want to get fresh organs too. So then you're stuck with, okay, how do you do fresh organs? Do you do it raw? Do you do it cooked? Let's just take liver, for instance. If you take liver and you cook it, and you cook it all the way through, does it have a benefit? Yes. But are you going to lose things like riboflavin, which are pretty beneficial? Yeah. So you're kind of stuck. Like, how do you do this? If you sear the outside of the liver, you're going to get rid of bacteria that's on the outside, but if there were a contaminant like a parasite in the middle, you may not actually kill the parasite if you're just searing the outside of the liver. I think the main concern with organs is something like a liver fluke or a parasite. I'm not so worried about bacteria on my meat or bacteria on my organs. Honestly, like, I've eaten probably 15,000 raw eggs in my life um, and only vomited once when I was eating eggs that were probably a year old that I found in a friend's fridge. Uh, I made some shady decisions when I was in uh, residency. So that's the only time I've ever had problems. And I just woke them in the night, puked out the window and I was fine the next day, no big deal. Um, I've also vomited from eating things like uh, cat's tail, which is something in the wilderness, like a little root 
that I was in survival at one point in residency and found that I had this grass allergy. This is a complete aside, it's a total non sequitur, but then I woke up in the middle of the night and just like vomited outside of the tent from eating this, this plant that I was allergic to. So um, this happens to humans sometimes, it happens to dogs sometimes. But I do think that like worms and parasites are people worry about. So there are liver flukes, there are parasites that occur in liver that humans could potentially get. I think it's rare. And I think the freezing process is going to decrease the possibility. I've heard anecdotally, or um, at least I've heard in uh, some at some level of science that I haven't really gone on the rabbit hole fully on, that like, yeah, minus 30 is great, but my freezer isn't minus 30. Like, that's freaking, that's a research freezer in a lab. Maybe it'd be great to have a minus 30 freezer, but then again, you know, if I'm getting organs from Diego at Grasso, Costa Rica, he's probably had them frozen for three weeks. So is that gonna help? I would say probably, like, a lower temperature for like two or three weeks, the parasites survive that? Oh, I'm not sure, we, we need to do more research into it. I think it's so rare that I don't worry about it. I eat raw liver pretty much every single freaking day. Um, I eat raw heart, raw spleen. You guys saw me eat raw kidney yesterday, raw testicle. I don't think that heart, spleen, kidney, testicle are gonna have parasites. I think you're really worried about the liver because that's where all the portal blood flow goes. So like from the stomach, um, from the intestines, like the blood comes through the portal circulation of the liver and that's where things are gonna get sort of at least dealt with first. People think the liver is a filter. The liver is not a filter. The liver is a biotransformation powerhouse that transforms toxins into things that can be excreted in the urine and the poop. So that's what the liver is. The liver doesn't accumulate many toxins. It will accumulate some heavy metals, but it doesn't accumulate like all the toxins and all the pesticides. It wants to get rid of things, generally speaking. And liver will use glutathione to get rid of heavy metals over the course as well. It's not just gonna store, store, store over the course of life. And then people will think, oh, it's not, why would you eat this filtering organism well? This filtering organ well, it's because it's so rich in all these nutrients that are hard to find in other places. So this is a long-winded answer to your question to say that Frozen for as long as you can is great. Um, from the best source you can is great. I wanted to ask this of Diego yesterday and I forgot to. Like, but when I talk to butchers in the past, they'll say, you can see, did you guys see the liver yesterday? We got footage of this. It was pretty much brown or like dark red and smooth. There were no scars. I'm pretty sure that a lot of parasites leave scars on the liver. They, they make the liver look not great. Like you could see it, like an experienced butcher could see it when they're cutting into the liver. If your liver, is smooth and red and juicy, like that's probably fine. And worst case scenario, if you get a parasite, that's when you take an anti-parasitic medication and you move on as a human because you know your ancestors have had them in the past. Nobody wants that, but happens occasionally you move through it. Um, there's not a lot of massive bad here. I mean, nobody wants a liver fluke, but you can get rid of them too. So in that case, we are back on ivermectin. <laughs> yeah, you could. You could be back on ivermectin or, you know, like, yeah. Nitazoxanide or whatever, and you know, there's ways to test for that. Like, if you had a problem with that, you would know it, you would see it, and then you could get rid of it fairly easily. But I think it's very rare, and I've really never seen it. The last thing I'll say here is that I just had a friend email me or text me earlier today, and he said, My wife is convinced she has parasites, and I think, Oh my god, like, there's really just this, um, there's this, there's this fear happening in the media, like, you've all got parasites, you know. And, I just don't think that many people have parasites. I, I think that a lot fewer of us have parasites than, than we are led to believe. People would say, oh, if you eat any meat that's raw at all, you have parasites, and that's bullshit in my opinion. Like, you just don't see it. You don't see it on GI maps. You don't see it when you do these things. I've run, I've run hundreds of GI maps, and I've really never seen a worm, not once. I've seen one fucking amoeba. One amoeba, and this lady who was really sick and didn't feel good, who knows where she got it? She probably didn't even get it from me. She probably got it from water. It was Entamoeba histolytica. I've seen one amoeba. I've never seen a roundworm. I've never seen a fluke. I've never seen a tapeworm. Hundreds of GI maps. I'm not to say they don't occur, but 
it's it's more rare than we're led to believe. I mean, people want to, you know, they want to show these crazy videos on Instagram of like, look at my poop, it's just like a fucking spaghetti of worms. Like, rare, you know? Maybe if you live in Africa and you're drinking water from, you know, like an African watering hole, maybe, but it's pretty freaking rare. Perfect. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Hi, uh, Dustin from Dallas. Um, if you were to do another through hike, how would you maintain this way of eating? Uh, so I did through hike the Pacific Crest Trail um, in the year 2000. It's like another lifetime ago, and I've thought about this a little bit. It's three and a half months is what I did. So you probably want enough food for four months. You can resupply. So um, it would be a little trickier. Off the top of my head, what I would do is I would have a lot of jerky. I'd have a lot of desiccated organs, and in every resupply I would have tallow, right? Because fat is the heaviest thing. Yeah. So I'd have a jar of tallow, and that would be probably have two jars of tallow, because per calorie, or per gram, that's the most that's the most energy. And then I'd probably want to try and get fresh organs and fresh meat in every resupply. So I think what I would do is jerky um, and organs that are desiccated uh, between resupplies, which happen on average every three days, and then I would have tallow. And then I would probably have as much fresh food as I could every resupply, and as much fresh meat every resupply. And, and honey throughout the whole trip. And then probably cheese as well, because cheese was great. I never got sick of cheese the whole CCT, but I definitely got sick of peanut butter. <laughs> definitely. I never thought I would be sick of peanut butter at that time in my life, and I got so sick of peanut butter, I never wanted to eat it again. And I made this like porridge that I thought was the best thing in the world. It was oats and millet and and like uh, barley and flax seeds, and I got so sick of that, threw it out. But I never got sick of dairy. So you'd have to you'd have to finagle a little bit. But I, at every resupply, I'd have fresh fruit, and every resupply, I'd have fresh meat, and then I'd have as much dry, desiccated organs, and then the fat along the way. I think it would be doable. Yeah. This part, this corner over here. Is, oh, when you're done. I'm Meg. I'm from Dallas as well. Um, I have a history of anorexia and went through a standardized treatment process. Um, everything stayed the same except my weight with a balanced diet. So, and since going animal-based, I have not only not experienced a relapse, but Amazing. have uh, kept my weight stable and felt more emotional and mental energy than I've never felt before. Oh, that's so cool. So my question is, um, for clinicians and treatment teams that do treat eating disorders, how would you reply to uh, people claiming that this way of eating is eating disordered? Yeah, this is such a good question. I mean, as you were saying this, I was going to say, well, you're a great example of somebody that has what we canonically consider to be an eating disorder, and here is a selective intentional way of eating that actually is quite helpful for you. So my belief is that most eating disorders are connected with neuroinflammation, right? In, in some ways, these are psychiatric disorders. And I think that a lot of psychiatric disorders are neuroinflammatory. What causes neuroinflammation? We could generate a pretty good argument that it's the same stuff that generates gastroenterologic inflammation, right? Lectins, plant toxins. Could we remove these things? Yeah, absolutely. Like processed sugar, seed oils? Yeah. So I think that this argument is like, I, I don't even, I'm, there's a, there's a word for this, but I'm, I'm not finding it at this moment. It's like, they're, they're putting us between a rock and a hard place. You can't win, you know? Like, I actually think the way to treat people with, with eating disorders is to realize they have neuroinflammation and treat them with an elimination diet. And just to say, we're going to fix your neuroinflammation by getting rid of the foods that are causing your neuroinflammation. Because what's the, what's the opposite? Like, all foods are okay? How well does that work? You know, I mean, in your experience, it didn't work. It didn't work. And it's not been my experience that it works in all of my training. And so I think that people in this space are well-intentioned, but they have to be honest with themselves and realize, like, 
look, if what you're doing isn't working and people aren't getting better with bulimia or anorexia or any sort of disordered eating, like what you're doing doesn't work. It's wrong. You have to think about it. You have to think outside of the box, and it's okay to give people a prescription that is going to decrease inflammation and frame it in a certain way. It's like, this is not restricted, this is intentional, right? We're not restricting foods, we're taking away the foods that are making you sick. I mean, if, if you knew that these foods were making someone sick and you took them away, that's the answer. That's not the problem. And I think that you have to be selective and intentional with foods, but this idea that like all foods fit, it's bullshit for me. It's, it's horrible, it's massive bullshit. It's monkey shit. Like, it's, it's, I don't even know what the hierarchy of shit is. Like, bullshit is probably more, it's like elephant shit. Like, it's a, it's a huge amount of shit, and it really hurts people because there's no end. Where do you go from there? All you keep getting shit. sick. Where do you go? Keep getting sick and relapsing. Yeah, you keep getting sick and relapsing, and then, you know, people don't get, don't get help. They don't, they, they, don't get, they don't get well. So I think at some point you have to frame it differently and say, if this is neuroinflammation, then we have to treat it differently. So that's, that's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing your story, because that's, that's huge. Because this is the main problem, right? This is something I run into all the time. People will say, what you're doing, Paul, is you're telling people these foods are not good, and you're causing eating disorders. And, you know, and I look around, and I'm like, I don't know. I mean, how, do you guys have eating? Does anyone? I mean, like, honestly, like, you guys can raise your hand. Does anybody think they have developed an eating disorder from, you know, intentionally choosing foods? I don't see a single hand in the room. Obviously, there's a little bit of confirmation bias here and a little selection <laughs> bias, but, but it just says, I don't think it happens that way. I don't think that, you know, in our, in our basic paradigm, we think, oh, if you restrict foods, then you could get an eating disorder. I think, no, it's, it's neuroinflammation, which is it's different, right? It's, it's very similar to depression. It's very similar to anxiety. It's similar to bipolar in some ways, or even psychiatric, or even, you know, psychotic disorders. It's neuroinflammation, and I think we treat it that way. The whole paradigm shifts. So that's Thank really you. cool. Yeah, yeah. This is along the same lines, actually. I'm Liz from Ohio. I lost 100 pounds and um, on a ketogenic and eventually mostly carnivore diet, and I came off all antidepressants. So my question is, do you think ketosis is helpful in treating mental illness? And if so, does it need to be long-term? Do you think you can eventually heal those issues and it's no longer necessary? Yeah, good question. I know Chris Palmer at Harvard has had pretty good evidence, pretty good results with ketosis and mental illness. Um, so I think that ketosis does have a place treating mental illness. I would love to see it be one of the first interventions. Um, the problem that we basically invariably run into with humans is that long-term ketosis is not sustainable for us as humans. And so is it a tool? Yes. Is it the end result? Is it the end thing? I don't think so. Are you um, sure it's not sustainable for I'm some? I'm pretty sure it's not sustainable. <laughs> Why? Because the kidney needs insulin signaling to maintain electrolytes. And what I've seen so often, so often, is that um, we run into palpitations, we run into uh, cramping, we run into sleep disturbance, we run into hormonal changes with long-term ketosis. It's just the body really struggles to maintain electrolytes without some level of insulin signaling at the, at the kidney uh, and electrolyte maintenance. I mean, people are taking like mountains of salt and mountains of electrolytes, and I think it's, it's causing problems. So long-term, I don't think it works for humans. In the short-term, I think it's great, um, and I think that it's, it's, it's beginning to address things in the right way because it's a dietary shift. The question is, I would say, number one, how is someone constructing the ketogenic diet? Because if they're constructing a ketogenic diet of vegetables, uh, then I don't think that that's gonna work long-term for people. Um, if they're constructing a ketogenic diet with the wrong type of fats, I don't think it's going to work for people. 
if they're constructing a ketogenic diet without organs or without nutrients, I, think, I don't think it's going to work for people. If they're constructing a ketogenic diet with a lot of nuts, I don't think it's good for people long-term. So there's a lot of ways you could construct a ketogenic diet that I think will not be great for people long-term. This is just my perspective. I think there's ways to do it that will be better. But um, again, I don't think that carbohydrates are the root cause of neuroinflammation. Um, I think there are other things that cause neuroinflammation. And in someone that is metabolically unwell or uh, insulin resistant, um, then uh, sometimes restriction of carbohydrates in the short term is beneficial, but I think long term we have to look a little deeper. Hey Paul, Tim from Western North Carolina. You mentioned wanting to turn Santa Teresa into a meat town. And you might have said that. Yeah, well I know exactly what you meant by that. I'm sure we all do. And I was just wondering how you envision, like what steps you envision for that to happen. And I ask, knowing that the answer could be extrapolated to the world. Right. Um, you know, this is the second year we've done the gathering. And it's awesome. It's just so cool to meet you guys. There's 10 or 15 people here last year. But that means there's 80 or 85 people who are new. And if you can get this many people to travel across the world to this little town in the middle of nowhere, um, that's really awesome. And I think that there's... That's, uh, there's a lot of potential for that to be a model. Um, I mean, look at what happened with you know, the C word, with COVID. Like, nobody has community anymore. Nobody sees anybody's faces. And, and I think humans need community. They need people that they can be around. And we don't all see the world the same way. I'm sure that if we all talk politics or religion, we wouldn't see the world the same way. But if we have, but everybody in this room has some, at least some degree of uniting belief. And what's so cool is when people are like, uh, when they've understood that like me and organs are beneficial for humans and that maybe they've been misled, that they find a lot of common ground. You can spend a lot of time valuable with people. I mean, there were, everybody was jumping off waterfalls and hiking and you guys went surfing this morning and then dinners every night look like people are just really, think about how easy it is to break down barriers in this situation. I mean, I see it every night. It's so cool at dinner to see people just talking and it's almost like you, you have instant friends. You know that you have things in common with people. You know that almost everybody here has some story, whether it's IBS or eczema or you know, depression or anxiety or eating disorders, like something that's affected their lives massively. And I think that finding ways to unite humans around that kind of stuff is huge. Um, and in some ways, it's, it's quite ancestral. And that word is getting so used these days that I, I, I hesitate to overuse it. But it is, I think it is ancestral for humans to come together with a common belief. And it's like, if you believe what I believe, then we are brothers. We are sister, you know, we are brother and sister, or we are brothers, you know? And so we are essentially some sort of a family. And, and that's really cool. And so I think that model could be scaled. And, and, you know, when we understand foundational beliefs for people and we help people connect, then then we create things that are really powerful for humans in terms of connection. Here in Santa Teresa, I have no idea what it's going to look like. I kind of just want people to see the place and to come back and travel here or to tell their friends about it or to, 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 to buy property maybe and, and we'll see where it goes. But I think that every year getting 100 plus people here is going to have an impact on this town. It, it can't not because eventually more and more people are going to come or people will move to Nosara. More and more people will end up on the Guanacaste Peninsula. And I think once it's a critical mass, people are like, oh, that's where there's this really cool group of people. It's not a cult, Joe Rogan. It's not a cult. <laughs> uh, that's where this really cool group of people can be. I mean, we were sitting at dinner and you were telling me that in California, you don't, you don't have anybody, like, you don't really have friends. And I, you know, I had a friend staying with me a couple of months ago, or like a couple of months, he left a few weeks ago, and he's in London, he said, yeah, my friends think I'm crazy. I mean, how many people in this room 
have experienced people in their life telling them, you're crazy, you know, you're eating too much. Like, every freaking man is going up right now, right? So, like, how powerful is it to be in a place, in a room where people are like, you can eat more meat than that. Come on. You can do more pull-ups than that, you know? Like, you can jump off a 30-foot waterfall. Like, there are some major bruises in this room. <laughs> but, like, seriously, like, this is the complete opposite. Nobody's going to tell you you're eating too much meat. Eat more meat, dude. Like, do more cool things. Go surfing, you know, go for that wave. Or here, have some raw testicle. I mean, the amount of people coming up and just eating raw testicle was amazing yesterday. So there's a lot to this. I feel like I'm rambling. Did I answer your question? Yeah, I mean, I feel like you are what you eat. And so for me, our diet is like the foundational thing yeah. we have in common because I'm someone who likes to try to build intentional community, which is really hard. And I feel like if I was trying to commune with people that were on a different, totally different diet, it just wouldn't work. That's such a good point. It's such a good point. I mean, it's like, I think diet is, is, is central. It's, I don't want to say, God damn you, Joe Rogan, I don't want to say religion. You know? like, but in a way, it is, it is a little bit like a religion, you know, like, um, for people to say, like, well, if so much of your life is based around what you eat two to three times a day, it's uh, a big deal. It's a really common... It's a common uniting thing. What's that? Pass the blood cooling. I know. Pass the blood cooling. Yeah, I mean, before modern society, everybody was probably pretty much together on what they were eating. You know, in the tribal days. Yeah, yeah. Probably was a lot of continuity with that. I think that, yeah, I mean, in, in the Hadza, there's nobody, there's no vegetarians in the Hadza tribe, right? Like, they all, they all know the meat and organs, they all want the meat and organs and the honey, and they all, they all understand it. It's just, it's, fun, it's fundamental. It's just built into what humans do. Paul, my name is Gabe. Uh, thank you for everything you've done. Me and my girlfriend Amy always talk about how we love you because we get to enjoy eating honey all the time. I now. know, it's so good. <laughs> but anyways, so uh, three-part question. Um, two of them are really quick. But So for magnesium and electrolytes, um, because we have a reverse osmosis filter at home, we do like the concentrate mineral drops. So I'm wondering if you see any downsides to that. Um, for iodine, just to be on the safe side, I have like an iodine supplement that's from a salt bed. So it's just... It's just pure iodine from a salt bed that I'll just... It's 600 micrograms per drop. I maybe use it a couple times a week. I mean, the RDA is 150. It's 150, yeah. So 600 is a lot. Even yeah. one drop is a lot. So like, yeah, you're probably not overdoing it, but I don't think you need it. Okay. Yeah. Concentrates I'm fine with. You're fine with the as concentrates. As far as I can tell, yeah. Maybe I'd change my mind on that in the future, but I don't think so. Um, yeah, and then the last question is, like, so I've healed from multiple chronic diseases already. Still got a couple more I'm trying to fix, but um, I feel good on animal base. I feel great. Um, Seabull's, like, gone away and hasn't came back yet Even so far. Even with fruit and honey. Even with fruit and honey. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is very contradictory yes. to what you've been told. Yes, about, like, about small intestinal I did, like, I did the antibiotics, uh, like, a year ago, uh -huh. when I did a high FODMAPs with the antibiotics, and it fucking destroyed me. Okay. Um, horrible. I had to like do a five day water fast because carnivore wasn't doing it. But, uh -huh. um, question is, so now that I'm feeling good, you know, things are going well, at, for just for pre preventative measures, are there any tests or lab tests that you recommend that one just do periodically just to make sure things are running well or as long as you're feeling good, should that be your number one barometer? In general for animal based? Just, just, just for me, uh, as like general health wise, like yeah. should I be looking to get tests if I feel great or? I think every year to two, if you're feeling good, uh, if you're less than forty, every year to two you could get blood work. And I, we talked about it earlier: CBC, Comprehensive Metabolic Panel, Thyroid Panel, Male Hormones, Female Hormones, uh, HSCRP, Fasting Insulin, Uric Acid is probably a good start. And if you feel good, I don't need anything more than that. 
So what's for the butyric acid? I guess what's the where do you want to be at? Four, four point five. Or below? Mm-hmm. Milligrams per deciliter. Yeah. Okay. There's been a lot of talk about uric acid in the podcast about that a few weeks ago. Okay. Organs will not raise uric acid in the metabolically healthy human. I, I yeah. And uric acid is that a byproduct of ammonia from eating too much protein? No, it's a byproduct of purine breakdown. Okay. Um, and it's a byproduct of other metabolism in the human body. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And sometimes you know a. AMP can be converted into uric acid, adenosine monophosphate. So, yeah, but it's 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 in vogue right now because a book was written about it, and people are correlating high levels of uric acid with problems. And it's like, is the uric acid causing a problem? Is it reverse causality? Is it just an association? I mean, uric acid appears to cause gout when it crystallizes, but it's a much more complicated picture than people are painting it to be. And I mean, what you're taught in medical school is that meat and organs. And fructose raise uric acid, but it's much more complex than that because meat and organs won't raise fructose, won't, won't raise uric acid. If you're metabolically healthy, I've shown that over and over. My uric acid is always really low. It's actually lower on animal based than it was on carnivore. Carnivore was 4.5, most recently 3.9 with honey and fruit. So that doesn't work, right? There's something more complex going on there. Not, not just my labs, but other people's labs, and there's evidence of that as well. And even then, Dr. Perlmutter came out and he said that's what I'm talking about, yeah. Right, and he it was more isolated fructose was more of the cause for hunger. Yes, yes, isolated fructose is the cause rather than fruit, and if you look at, but in his book, he recommends against eating organs. Oh, he does? Yes. Oh, because in the podcast I didn't hear that. Yeah, in his book he recommends against eating organs, and I'm like, okay, we're going to have to fight. <laughs> like, not really, you know? He's, 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 more, he's, not meat. he's more plant-based, yeah. Yeah, he's more plant-based. It wouldn't be a good thing. Yeah. Not, I don't want to fight anybody. What, and this, what about, like, the Nutrival uh, micronutrient assay? Like, I know I know a lot of that's not accurate, too, as far as it's testing okay. it. Yeah, it's kind of like what we talked about earlier. Like, you've got this box of the human organism. You're looking through, like, blurry windows, and you're like, oh, I can kind of make out something. It's okay. okay. Yeah, I mean, if but you have you, unlimited funds... But you, like, so you wouldn't recommend it as, as, as like, preventative? No, I don't think you need it on a yearly basis. Just regular, like, more mainstream blood work, which is probably, I mean, if you're, if you're insurance, insurance probably pay for it. If you pay cash, that's yeah, it's probably... Cash. It's about a G to do all that. Like, it's about what? About a G to do, like, fasting insulin. I think it'd be less work. than that, depending okay. on the blood work, on the lab. Maybe $500 every two years for that, for those labs. Okay. Yeah. But if you're feeling, I mean, if you're feeling good, it's like, what's, what are you going to change? Right. One of the, one of the, one of the, sayings that I like from medical school is you don't get a test unless it's going to change management. And I think blood work would change management. If if you saw your iron was off the charts, that might change the way you eat. If you saw your uric acid was 8, it might change the way you eat. If you saw your HSCRP was high, you might change the way you eat. But it's not worth getting tested or change what you do. Yeah. If your iron's high and your animal base, I mean, what else would you do other than maybe just give some donations? Yeah. Make sure you have the mic if you can ask questions. Check for, uh, oh yeah, Will you ask the question again with the mic? So, like, if your iron if your iron is high and you're doing an animal based diet, like, what else would you do other than maybe just go donate blood? Uh, I would check for hemochromatosis. You need to know your genetics. So, if you had hemochromatosis, then you would do phlebotomy. And people define iron as high in different ways, right? There's like, is uh, is high iron a ferritin greater than 150? Is it 250? Is it 300? I think you have to triangulate with things like GGT, gamma glutamyl transferase. Uh, measures of oxidative stress to see if the iron is causing an oxidative stress. So people would say, oh, you're eating all that iron, you're going to get oxidative stress. And I just don't think that that's as linear a relation as people make it out to be. A, a ferritin of 500, yeah, it's too high. And an iron sat of, of 70, yeah, it's too high. But that's all just diagnostic criteria for hemochromatosis. So you just need to know if you have hemochromatosis. If you don't, 
in your ferritin, or I would say, I don't have hidden chromatosis. Since my ferritin, I think, was like 2, 220 last time. I don't worry about it at that level. And most people will stabilize at a certain level. That's pretty high compared to like what a lot of traditionally, like, yes, traditional because practices. I eat more meat than traditional people do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. My B12 is also higher than traditional people, and my coenzyme Q10 is also higher than traditional people, you know, like traditional labs. And my vitamin E is above, you know, right. most But then you have low, oxida low ox oxidized LDL, low my CRP. Yeah, I'm assuming that you have low oxidized LDL and low CRP. Your fasting insulin's good, so like you look at the the, yeah, the so holistic the thing. Yeah, not, there's the whole picture. There. The only thing I'll say with regard to that is that the um, the oxidized LDL is a very hard test to get because most oxidized LDL blood work is not that accurate. So the only one I'm aware of is from Boston Heart, and it's oxidized phospholipids on ApoB. Um, that's kind of technical. We can talk about it offline. Um, one or two more, and then we'll wrap it up. Zane, what's the time? It's about four or ten. So we've been going for just over about over. Uh, this whole group over here has like over. Zero. I'm sorry. Let's do let's do one or two, and then you guys can just get me afterwards. I just want to do that and Do it, and then we'll, we'll finish. I'll do a quick one. Yeah, so first, I'm Lorenzo from Venezuela. I just wanted to give an anecdote that I have lost over 70 pounds doing carnivore. Uh, I have a quick question about longevity. Uh, for me, it made so much sense, you know, this diet, because uh, growing up in Venezuela, we ate organs all the time. Me and my siblings would fight for who got the heart of the chicken when we have lunch. Our mom would just toss it to it, one or the other, so I was raised the same. I also grew up climbing trees, growing a mango, you know, and or a coconut. So it made a lot of sense. Yeah. It brought me back to life, you know, 70 pounds down. Uh, however, I have arguments with some friends, and some of them have a, a counterpoint that I don't really know the answer to. And they're saying, okay, uh, these foods might make you thrive, but evolutionarily, nature doesn't care of you living 100 years. You know, nature only cares for you to reproduce, and then you may die of a heart attack at 40. And so, like, they're basically saying, like, these foods will make you feel awesome so that you can reproduce, but then they'll kill you early. And I don't know if there's any evidence that, uh, I guess my question is, do you think our ancestors, uh, aside from murder and death and all that, could live up to 100 years or, so, or something like that? I do, um, but I'll also say this. If that were a trade-off, I'd rather live well and short, right? I'd rather have libido and reproduce and, you know, be strong and do the things I like to do. And, and then go out, you know, a heart attack on a huge wave at 50, you know? <laughs> I don't think that's what happens, right? Because that, I don't think that's the way it works. People love to make these arguments philosophically with no evidence to back it up. So I wish your friends were here, because I would say, can you show me, like, any evidence, or is this just an opinion? No, I don't think they have any evidence, they're just saying it. They're just saying it because it's a, because it's a, it's a, it's a mind worm that's placed there from, like, vegan people saying, like, when, when they realize that, like, a vegan or plant-based diet is completely nutrient deficient and horrible for humans, they say, well, we need to figure out some sort of other philosophical idea that could possibly be the reason that we should eat like this, because, you know, oh, you're going to feel too good and you're going to die early. Well, you know, that, it makes no sense yeah. to me. You know? The only argument they have is that they say that the death rate was much lower, but I always say, hey, that's because of war and all these things that they uh, were doing back then. But if you could have uh, 3,000 years ago a peaceful life in a mountain, you could possibly live up to 1,000 years on a diet like this. And I wanted to know if there's any evidence of ancestors living up to 100 years or things like that. There definitely are. Walk cemeteries. Like, I've, you know, in traveling, I go to cemeteries. It's kind of a weird thing. But you'll see headstones that are very young people died babies, mothers with them, and then you see a lot of really old people, like 80, 90, 100 years old people. 
like in cemeteries in France and Italy and wherever there, and even here in the States too, lots of old people lived. There a lot of the, I think the death rate, the mortality is skewed because of infant mortality and women used to die in childbirth a lot. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's, I, I repeat this ad nauseum, uh, you know, and I've talked about it on so many podcasts with Chris Ryan, like, Indigenous hunter-gatherer cultures appear to live as long as us with a much better health span. They have squaring of the morbidity curve, and the the purported idea that they have higher rates of, of or you know high, lower life expectancy is because of higher rates of mortality. Because it turns out that being a wild human is really fucking dangerous. <laughs> and when I was at the Hadza, you figure out why they get bitten by snakes, they fall out of trees. Um, you know, there's a one-year-old toddling around camp, like climbing on rocks. Like it's just it's dangerous. And childbirth in the wild is dangerous. Like a woman can hemorrhage and then there's nothing to stop, right? And being a wild human is dangerous. And we have, um, you know, obstetrics now where we can stop uterine hemorrhage or, you know, if the uterine has atony um, and the uterus doesn't, gets, doesn't tense and just keeps bleeding. But, you know, this happens to humans in the wild and it happens to wild animals. I mean, you look at the survival rate of humans in Western society and it's much higher than like wild animal survival rate. You have to imagine that, like humans died at, probably about the same rate as like wild animal births at birth. That's how we were for millions of years. And now a lot more humans live, which is great, but um, we can't use that as a proxy or as, a, uh, as something that changes the life expectancy. And you know, when you see this, it's over and over and over, you see this, like if you live to adulthood, you live as long as a westernized human with a much greater health span. That's almost incontrovertible at this point. It's, just, it's so crazy because that notion gets repeated so often. Oh. Every time I say, the Hadza are thriving, there's always some knucklehead in the comments, but your ancestors only lived to be 35. And I think, okay, there's another opportunity to like, educate this guy. It's just, it's, there's a lot of people that haven't understood this as much as you repeat it. So it gets a little frustrating for me, but it's, it's, it's pretty clearly documented. You make a great point about the cemeteries. I hadn't really thought about that, but it's true. There's a lot of kids in cemeteries, and that changes the life expectancy. So what your friends are saying is like, okay, that's a possibility. Show me some evidence that that actually happens. Like, have you studied any indigenous culture? Do you know how long the Hadza lived? Do you know how long the Yikon lived? Do you know how long the Samburu lived? Do you know any of it? Do you know how long the Messiah lived? No, they won't know any of this. They're just going to parrot something that they've been told, and it's like, oh, you're maximizing for short term. Well, even if I were, I would take that, because who wants to be a skinny, sarcopenic, uh, low libido, chronically cold, pasty individual that lives 90 years? <laughs> what is the point? Like, what are you going to do? Like. You can have your fucking kale salads for 90 years. Like, I don't fucking want them. I just don't want them. Like, I'd rather eat steak for 40. We know that's not really the trade-off. But, you know, um, one of my friends uh, did a post the other day, and they, I won't say the name, but they, they put a picture of, you know, one of the prominent vegan doctors, and he's, he's holding a piece of broccoli with a candle in it, and he's like 48 years old, and he looks horrible. <laughs> he looks horrible. So show that picture to your friends and say, like, look, this is this is the pinnacle of health. He's bloated, his beard is all gray, he has no muscle mass. Be like, here's the pinnacle of health. This guy's gonna outlive you. Good luck. Good luck. Let's do one or two over here and then we'll we'll wrap it up. Hi, I'm Nikki from Tamarindo. Um, I had a question. I've been following you since you were like before Carnivore MD, um, and I kind of maybe missed some of the finer details when you started adding in fruit and, and honey. Um, 
I'm just trying to kind of figure out how to add that into my life. I haven't really been doing that. So one question was, is it just like eat as much as you like unlimited? Um, is there any like timing factor? Um, is there, uh, can you eat it alone or is it going to spike your you know, sugar? Should you try to pair it with fat? Um, and then kind of on top of that, I've got two young kids. So kind of like, you know, if you had kids, like how would you feed them in terms of that, adding in all these foods? Yeah, okay, great question. Um, I don't really worry about it. I eat fruit by itself. I eat fruit with my meals. I eat fruit with protein. I eat fruit with fat. I don't worry about it. Um, and I just eat what feels reasonable. And I, I kind of hate the idea of intuitive eating, but for me, it's trended to like 200 plus grams of carbohydrates a day, but I'm a 165 pound male who serves and lose weight. So kind of see where you want to be. And you know, we both live in Costa Rica, so you can get you can get uh, tropical fruit, which is amazing. In the beginning, I was eating more honey. Now I eat a little less honey, a few tablespoons a day, and more fruit. And just kind of experiment. But see how you feel, and kind of go from there. Um, and I think that that's the best way to guide it. But it, I do think multiple pieces of fruit is fine. Uh, most low carbers would um, would would shit a, a keto brick <laughs> if they saw how many bananas I eat a day. You know, it's six, four to six. You know, like. I mean, you can't really see it over there, but there's, like, you know, there's a shelf of fruit and papaya and pineapple. And if somebody walked into my house, they'd, they'd give me a high five. They'd be like, you're great. You're fruitarian, right? And you're like, look at my fucking fridge. It's all, it's all me and organs, you know? So, but it looks like I'm a fruitarian over there. I got a shitload of fruit. And I don't, you know, I like, I'll eat half a pineapple a day sometimes. And papaya. And I don't worry about it. I just kind of go, like, oh, I'd like some more fruit and see, see how it works. But I think as a general rule, like, start with a few pieces of fruit and a few tablespoons of honey and kind of go from there. Now, uh, I think for kids, it's amazing. I mean, you can tell me if this is true or not, but I think most kids uh, are not going to fight you if you want to feed them fruit or meat. And so, there, your life's easy. You <laughs> That's know? pretty and, much what they eat now. Exactly, right? Like, kids are animal-based in and of themselves. They just want to eat blueberries and meat, and the parents are having aneurysms thinking, you need to eat some broccoli or some kale. And I don't think that's the way it is. So, the next book is going to be a kid's book, I hope. Yeah. About, you know, like, why you don't have to, why... Like, Charlie the Cave Kid doesn't eat his broccoli. <laughs> his parents lose their shit, and they realize, you know, it's fine. Alrighty, okay, my name is Amy. I'm from Oregon, and me and my husband have been doing carnivore for about five months, and I got pregnant with an IUD in during this time, and I... I'm definitely contributing it to carnivore. I think I got I a lot better. Bad, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I got a lot more healthy. Um, my question is, have you researched pregnancy and women's cycles on the carnivore diet? And what are your thoughts about that? Also, um, what do you think about supplementing with herbs and certain plants for women's hormones? Okay, those are two good questions. So are we differentiating carnivore from animal-based? Because I, going back to the ketogenic discussion, I think if you're low carb, that's going to change your cycle and your hormones in a negative way long term. Then animal-based. Then animal-based, I think it's fine. Um, because I, I'm not worried about that because you're going to have carbohydrates, so physiologically, you're going to have an insulin spike, you're gonna, electrolytes are going to be fine. Um, I mean, like, I've thought about this a lot. I think, what's the difference between animal-based and paleo? It's basically vegetables. Uh, I don't think a lot of people believe paleo is harmful for humans. So unless you believe that we necessarily need wheat to be healthy, which I'm pretty sure most people will you know, not believe we need wheat to be healthy. But I'm just not convinced that giving up broccoli is gonna be harmful for humans. Like I don't think there's anything in broccoli that we absolutely need. So I think animal-based is fine in pregnancy. Get enough carbohydrates, get enough calories, 
getting enough fat, get organs. Your husband and I were talking yesterday, it's like, what about raw organs for pregnancy? That's where you get a little bit dicey, right? You want to know quality, you really want to be very, very safe, because now you're dealing with a fetus and, you know, two people. Um, and so I would say, be careful with raw organs in pregnancy, that's maybe where desiccated is better, or cook them fully, or have a really, really good source, um, or maybe even stay away from like liver. And then people get worried about vitamin A toxicity in liver and I, in, in pregnancy, and I think that the upper end is 10,000 IU, but if you eat half an ounce or the equivalent of liver a day, you're well below that, you're totally safe. And I think vitamin A is essential, and all the other B vitamins and things like heart and liver are essential for neural tube formation, and you know, tribes give uh, women who are looking to become pregnant or pregnant organs for sure. Um, second question was herbs. Uh, I'm not a fan. Uh, I think that herbs to correct women's hormones is, is like um, uh, the same paradigm as Western medicine. Like what's causing the hormones to be abnormal in the first place? Is it stress? Is it sleep? Is it circadian rhythm? Is it mold? Is it something else, right? So I think correct the root cause. Don't use a crutch like an herb, which can have side effects to treat a hormonal issue. People say like, what about uh, DIM? You know, what about I3C? Like uh, these, uh, these cruciferous compounds and women's hormones, because it helps you get rid of estrogen dominance. And it's like, estrogen dominance is insulin resistance until proven otherwise. Why would you do cruciferous vegetables or DIM or I3C uh, when you could just improve your insulin sensitivity? That's the way to do it in my opinion. You don't need to use cruciferous or isothiocyanate compounds to remove estrogen in the short term, just fix things at the base. Okay, yeah. Um, the reason I ask is it's been really hard for me to eat meat or do other things in this first trimester where everything makes you want to throw up. And so supplementing like with ginger tea has helped nausea and certain things like that. And you're saying that like if you're healthy, that just doesn't happen. Like, well, that's not, a, that's not really what I'm saying. I think ginger tea for nausea, is, is, that's a medicinal use of ginger. But okay. you asked me about hormones. Hormones. That's, yeah, you're yeah. right. That's different. So, and, you know, hyperemesis... Uh, in pregnancy is, is a tricky thing. Um, what I know about this is that higher dose vitamin B6 is helpful for the nausea. I don't think we fully understand why people get nauseous, right? Or what causes it or how to fix it. Um, but I think that um, maybe desiccated organs would be helpful. Higher dose vitamin B6 pyridoxine is helpful. And it's, it's another rabbit hole to go down. Like, what are we missing there? Um, but yeah, if ginger tea helps, I think it's fine. Um, but for hormones, I don't think we should use herbs for that. Okay, yeah. thank you. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so... My understanding of like fructose, it's kind of metabolized in the gut, and then over a certain point, it like spills over into the liver, and then it's metabolized there, right? It appears that way. Right. And then like too much can be bad and lead to like NASH, NFLD, possibly. Mm -hmm. So, but most of the studies I've seen, it's like they give them a fructose drink. It's not yes. fruit. Yes. So, I guess my question is, is there a point at which you think eating fruit, like having a tin banana smoothie or something? will lead to that same thing as possibly fructose bolus, the bad. Possible. So I talked about this on a podcast two weeks ago. There's a study by Josh Rabinowitz. I'm pretty sure they gavaged, so they looked at the amount of uh, fructose and they got up to one gram per kilogram in animals. So you figure like I'm 75 kilograms, so like 75 grams of fructose in one meal is quite a bit. But you could do that with bananas. I mean, how many, like that's 10 bananas, right? 10 bananas, if I made a 10 banana smoothie, maybe. Um, but I think that you know most of my meals are well below 75 grams of fructose. And then the other thing they note in that study is eating fructose and eating food upregulates the capacity of the gut to take care of these things. So you can protect the liver from the fructose in that way. 
And then there's the question of whether the gavage, which is going to be like a liquid fructose, is the same dose as like a fruit, which could be even more. And then um, there's a great study. I mean, Rick Johnson, who was on the Tia's podcast recently, I don't know why they didn't talk. I do know why they didn't talk about this podcast study because it, it kind of it might have been confusing for the audience. But he's done a study with people where they had a low fructose diet and they had improvements metabolically, but then they had another arm with a low fructose diet, low processed fructose diet, where they ate four to 550 calories a day in fruit. So that's 100 plus grams of, of you know, carbohydrates from fruit a day. Those people did fine. They didn't have any negative consequences to 100 plus grams of carbohydrates from fruit in a day. So like, I don't know why they want to talk about it. Like fruit doesn't really seem that bad. And that's the study by Rick Johnson. So I think that there's a pretty high threshold for that. Um, and I would be, I think it's, you can eat a reasonable amount of fruit, which is fine. Without doing, you know, without actually looking at the portal circulation and what's going on in the liver, immediately postprandially, we can't tell for sure. But I think that I, that was a really interesting podcast for me to do. The audio on it kind of sucked because something, there was like a demon that possessed my <laughs> roadcaster. Um, but uh, hopefully people have heard that one too. So cool. All right, guys, we're going to wrap it up because. much longer than one hour and 45. Thank you all for being a part of this. Those were amazing questions and uh, I'm stoked.